Hey there. Just before we start the show, I want to let you know that we're uh, doing a pledge drive to help cover our hosting and production costs for both Mega Ten Marathon and Combo Chain for the next year. It actually costs us over $500 a year, and so any amount you could contribute would be huge help. Since it's a pledge drive, we've got some special giveaways. Not tote bags, unfortunately, but if you contribute $5, you'll get an episode on The World Ends With You months before it gets released. Contribute 10 bucks, and you'll get that, as well as a special deep dive episode on Persona 5 Royal. But seriously, any amount is a huge help. To contribute, head over to tinyurl.com backslash Shane. Thanks so much for the support, and as always, for listening to the shows. Welcome to Combo Chain. It's a JRPG Games Club podcast. Today we'll be doing the Sega Genesis Classic Fantasy Star 4, The End of the Millennium. I'm Paul M. Davis, and today I'm joined by... Alexander D. McConnell. Welcome, Alex. Yeah, welcome, Alexander. Yeah, I've wanted to do a podcast with you for years now, so... Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Seriously. So, excited to have you on the show. Yeah, yeah, thanks for coming on. Before we get started, do you want to tell us a little bit about your like history with the game? Yes, I, I, I absolutely do. So my history with Fantasy Star 4 is that it should have been the game that got me into JRPGs. And I put this in the notes a little bit lower, but I'm going to talk about it now, is that when I was a kid... Our, we had a, a mom-and-pop video rental store in our neighborhood that went under. And when they went under, they were selling off all of their movies and all of their video games at $10 a pop. And End of the Millennium was one of the games they were selling. Oh, and, my God. And I picked it up and thought about buying it for 10 bucks, but decided that I thought the box art was quote-unquote stupid and so i put it back down needless to say i have some regrets (laughs) (laughs) and so what actually got me into jrpgs that that boris vallejo art didn't really do it for you no well the thing is if you look at the american box art for for uh fantasy star 4 the characters are wearing like weirdly baggy clothes like runes like his wizard costume is like mustard yellow and like weirdly <laughs> rumpled. And Chaz looks like kind of a goober on that cover. If you compare it to the Japanese cover, it's it's almost the same cover, but it's just the American version is like that cover, but bad. Mm-hmm. And so I, I didn't really know about JRPGs at that point. And it was like this... I loved sci-fi stuff, though. I loved like Star Wars and Star Trek and all that stuff. So I did think about it pretty hard, but I had never 
I'd never gotten around to renting it again because the box art turned me off and there's always something to rent. But I thought of, I remember it like being in my hand and then thinking back to the fact that this is an extremely rare and expensive game, right? Like, even from the time it was released, it was extremely expensive and has only gone up in price since then. So I really screwed myself real bad. But yeah, that was my first quasi experience with the game. I didn't get real exposure to it until a couple of years later when I, I was mostly a PC kid growing up. And at some point, someone introduced me to the idea of emulation. And I caught up on all of console gaming from basically the end of the 16-bit era backwards, like all at once. And I played, uh, I think I booted up Fantasy Star 2 first, and I'd already been playing Super Nintendo games by that time. So like playing Fantasy Star 2, I was like, oh, this is like Final Fantasy, but not as good, was how I saw it, which... uh, I mean, me just saying that broke some poor Sega kid's heart right now. <laughs> you, um, bro- you broke this poor Sega's <laughs> kid's heart. <laughs> but yeah, I totally see yeah, it. But that's, I, I already played Final Fantasy VI. There, that's mm-hmm. not fair. I played Chrono Trigger by this point. And it, was not a, it was not a reasonable comparison. But then I booted up Fantasy Star Four, and I was like, oh my god, this, this game is amazing. Like... The presentation, the mechanics, the music. Oh my God, the music. So good. And and it was like, it was on par with stuff that I was playing that was contemporary on my PlayStation at that time. And I, I was just like, this is one of my favorite games. This is like a must play video game. I seriously think that uh, there are three required 16-bit JRPGs, and those are Final Fantasy VI, Chrono Trigger, and Fantasy Star IV. Those are the you-must-play-these-games tier, S-tier, God-tier video games of that era. I think that's a pretty solid list. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Yeah, I think... Yeah, it's interesting because for me, I was... And I discussed this. We did a Fantasy Star One episode a, mm-hmm. a while back. But I was the one lone Sega Master System kid out there. And so I was in with the series like from the beginning. I got Fantasy Fantasy Star. What's that? Oh, sorry. Uh, I was just going to say Fantasy Star 1 is probably my second favorite in the series, having gone back and played it. So, yeah, if I if we'd been friends during that 8-bit era, I would have been extraordinarily jealous of you having this game. <laughs> I don't think I told this anecdote at the time. I did not know what to make of it. All, all, all I knew is that the reviews were amazing, but I did not know what to make of it, really. Yeah. And I loved it, being a big sci-fi kid also. And then my friend, this is uh, Kid Logic, or mm-hmm. bear in mind that this is a kid who's very nice and progressive person now that he's an adult but this was the late 80s he looked at it took one look at it and said this is a game for girls (laughs) (laughs) i felt really guilty about it for a couple of weeks and then i was like i don't give a shit this game is amazing and uh, stuck with it it is like extremely progressive for the age it came out in that it makes sense given kodama's prominence in the development of the thing that she would want to see a female protagonist. But it's really crazy to me that Sega let her do that at that time. It's, and, it's and amazing. Like, it's amazing that, you know, that 
we'll probably get into Kadama a bit more in a minute, but like, it's, it's amazing to me that she was such a huge, powerful force in Sega Japanese corporation in the eighties. Right. Um, yeah. It's really pretty impressive. And I noticed from your notes, uh, I, I'm a big fan of Kadama. So is Robert, who we recently did an episode. This is, I think like Combo Chain is maybe the secretly the <laughs> Reiko Kadama appreciation podcast. Cause we, a few episodes ago, we did uh, Skies of Arcadia and mm. uh, we uh, sent a lot you, of stuff to her way then too. Have you played Seventh Dragon yet? Um, I haven't. Is, I have. it, is it good? It's okay. It's okay. All right. All right. That, that's fine. It's beside the point. Anyway. Yeah. No, it's okay. It's pretty disappointing. There's nothing wrong with it. It's perfectly fine. If you want like a hit, nostalgic hit of, it's it's just a little bit too much of a generic JRPG ultimately, <laughs> which is really too bad. But there are definitely elements of Fantasy Star in there that you can see. And it really bums me out to see her amazing art turn to just like these very ger- generic, like chibi characters. But yeah, the art style of Seventh Dragon was definitely. I was like, well, it is Kadama, but uh, I don't know how I feel about this art. But I felt that way about a lot of Japanese art. I, I, it used to be a selling feature that you were getting Japanese art in video games, and now it feels like more something that you have to a a hurdle to jump over at least for western game players i I don't know how people i'm sure it must be popular in japan or it wouldn't be like that but Mm -hmm. it it used to be like if something had japanese art in it that meant that it was like extremely detailed and quality and smooth and just wonderful and and now it seems like usually i'm like it does seem like it could be a cool game if i can swallow this art style yeah, yeah, yeah. There's definitely some stuff to get, you have to get over. <laughs> it doesn't bother me as much as I know it bothers some people, but I am hosting a JRPG podcast. I, I still but, play uh, them. I study. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the fan service and the just really creepy shit gets to me. Yeah, without yeah a doubt. I, I sometimes do you definitely still have to draw the line at Moe? Yeah. But yeah, getting back to Fantasy Star, just to give a little more history. So when Fantasy Star 2 came out, I bought that like first day, same with Fantasy Star 3. Then, I don't know, at some point within a year or two of that, I decided that video games weren't cool anymore, man. And I was really into like, punk rock and I was really into bands and music. And so I skipped the end of the Genesis era and the 32 bit era of uh, games. And uh, at the time, and so, yeah, I only really actually came around to playing uh, fantasy star four via emulation, maybe three or four years ago. And it was a real treat. Yeah. Yeah. So both of our first exposure to this game was in wrong form. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's it feels like a shame that I <laughs> made my made my entire made my entire way through Fantasy Star Three, and then didn't actually see the play the true send off until yeah. you know twenty odd years later. But Fantasy Star Three is a rough putt too. There, that's oh, that's wow. 
Yeah. I'm sure you'll get around to it eventually. Oh, we'll, get, <laughs> we'll get into it right now. <laughs> Why don't we uh, start talking about the backstory and the development? So basically the first three Fantasy Star games came out within about a year and a half of each other. And the third entry <laughs> was developed by the Golden Axe team of all people yeah. rather than the core team. And uh, it's not very good. It's considered an outlier in the series. It has well, a cool twist at the end that I'm not going to spoil here. But, yeah. and it, ha- it has a cool concept in the fact that you have these different kind of generations. And so there's yeah. these like branching paths. There's some yeah, good ideas, but in the like it's, implementation, it's, it's good, not great. Yeah, it's got good ideas in it, but it is still not a good video game. Is the problem? Mm. It's it's definitely a poster child for a you tried, and and it's and I've got some love for the Golden Axe team. I played a lot of Golden Axe. Would be the best brawler on the Sega Genesis if Streets of Rage didn't exist. <laughs> oh yeah, that's great. <laughs> But they are probably not the best team to... Yeah, it's it's a little hard to go from a button masher that is the second best button masher on the console to being in charge of the first best JRPG series on that console. That's a kind of a step up in complexity of order of magnitude, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. And I, I'm curious, I couldn't get a, like a complete read on it, but... Fantasy Star 4 came out three years later in 1993 in Japan and 95 in the West. And I'm wondering if this had something to do with the fact that Fantasy Star 3 was given to another team. Basically, the folks, most of the team that worked on the first two games had scattered. Uh, Chieko Aoki was no longer with Sega. And uh, Yuji Naka's time was now completely devoted to Sonic the Hedgehog. And well, they, he, he, he printed money. Sonic printed money. So, you know, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, totally. I wonder if that had something to do with the fact, because Reiko Kodama basically had to rebuild a team developing uh, this game. Yeah. Um, and uh, <laughs> just a little, like, funny side anecdote. I remember after 3 came out, really looking mm-hmm. forward to 4, because there was definitely buzz that it was going to happen. And I remember going into some shitty game store in the mall and some douchebag uh, told very impressionable young Paul that the delay was because the game was supposedly about going to hell and that it was being censored by either Sega or by the, you know, powers that be or something like that. (laughs) I feel like that's the most common like playground rumor related to a delayed video game from the nineties that ever existed was that the next entry is being delayed because it, it, it's got satanic stuff in it and Mm -hmm. they're they're the, the powers that be are freaking out about it. Like there's something in the water at that point that like anytime a game had stuff like that, it, it got, it got whispers uh, uh, about that sort of thing, some like satanic panic related stuff. Maybe I don't know. I think, and if my if my like very bad memory serves me, they seem like probably like early twenties guy. He was probably really into Doom, and he was just yeah. trying to be yeah. They're trying to make it like Doom or, so, or like right. something right. like that. But like powers of B won't let it happen. You know, right? 
<laughs> and it's funny because they do go to hell in a way, <laughs> but we'll get yeah, to that. But, but it's like fantasy star hell, which means it's like impressionistic and weird and alien and it's more Giger than it is Bach. Yeah, it's, I don't know. It's, it's not hilarious. the sort of stuff that, that, that people were censoring in the 90s, really. <laughs> no, <laughs> that wasn't really on their radar at the time. But yeah, series co-creator Ryoko Kadama was given the joint director and designer title. This, of course, was a huge thing. She had definitely earned it with the previous games, but you know, yeah, it's still absolutely. amazing that women develop woman developer uh, and designer. In, I mean, it's in that still age, not that in common. Japan was given that much power. Yeah, it's still not yeah. that that common. So, yeah, it's really impressive. She was joined by uh, Fantasy Star Two character designer to- Toru Yoshida. He also acted as co-director, and the actual script was written by uh, series newcomer Akinori Nishiyama. Uh, Nishiyama. And uh, despite the long development title, or despite the long development cycle for the time, the team was beset by challenges, largely because their ambitions were to make it the most technically and narratively sophisticated game in the series. And they also wanted to deliver a uh, satisfying conclusion to the entire series. Mission accomplished, as yeah. we we are about to discuss at length. <laughs> yeah, yeah, seriously. But there, there were there were definitely uh, uh, a lot of hardships that they faced. Like one was that it was originally intended to be a Sega CD title. It, Sega CD was a total bust, so. It ended up having to be a uh, three megabyte cartridge, which was massive for the time. Um, That's crazy. So they really had to twist the arms of uh, Sega to put it out. The game cost a hundred bucks at the time, which accounting for inflation would be $179 today. Can, um, can you imagine paying 180 bucks for the base version of a video game today not like a collector's edition with a like a statue and whatever but just like just a video game 180 (laughs) dollars i know i know and i know the economics are very different from games now at the same time you know i saw that and i was thinking about the people freaking out that you know triple a games for the next gen consoles might be 70 dollars. 70 bucks yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. like oh man it it also made me think uh think about the fact that people also gripe about the cost of computers today and computers like back in the 80s and early 90s were like four grand yeah i I was gonna say i i just heard a story not too long ago that the reason that doom speaking of doom again got made at all was because Carmack decided to buy himself an early Christmas present and bought a super powerful computer for four grand and was like playing around with it during the Christmas break after they made Wolfenstein. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Like the price of technology was just very different at that time. If people didn't live through it, it was a different world. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's crazy. And I did not do the uh, inflation calculation for four four thousand dollars, but I'm sure it's pretty fucking high. A lot, yeah. It was like buying a car. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> or the the most like high end Mac Pro that you can get. Uh, um, yeah, that's that's what it actually was. I think. 
<laughs> With that additional development time, they were able to realize ambitions that they had for uh, Fantasy Star 2 that they had to drop, like uh, vehicle combat. And they were able to develop, they were able to deliver much more developed, nuanced characters and a much more complex plot. And part of how they did this was by using like manga inspired cutscenes that had multiple panels. Yeah, these are amazing. And I'm shocked I never saw them used in another video game before or since really i guess they give you some of that same energy as the cutscenes from like ninja gaiden as early as the nes but this is so much more sophisticated than that and it dawned on me partway through my playthrough for this podcast in on this go round that what it really reminds me of is fmvs from 32-bit jrpgs oh yeah that's a good point it's like in any place in a 32-bit JRPG where they would put an M- FMV cutscene, you have these multi-panel manga things that like, are honestly in some ways better than FMVs because you can actually get characters' like expression, like their like facial expression beyond very cartoony oh! expressions. <laughs> a character can turn away in grief and like just shut their eyes, and you know what that means, which... Uh, allows the story in this game to be extremely rich in a way that you wouldn't see again for generations of video games. Oh, yeah. Uh, It's really impressive and shocking to me that nobody just whole on stole this technique. Yeah, I imagine it was probably a certain, oh, we can have these like FMV cutscenes now very soon after and or like pre-rendered CGI cutscenes. And they saw this as being an evolutionary dead end. Yeah, but yeah. I, I, I would be surprised. Or I'm, I'm surprised we haven't even seen it in any indie games I can think of, or at least major ones. Yeah, because it's yeah, such yeah, a yeah. really expressive and iconic way of yeah telling the story. And probably a lot cheaper than doing real cutscenes, right? Nowadays, you at least I'm sure at the time it was a major pain to get it to work the way that it does because it does flow so nicely but it's basically just high quality art stills and it also helped that it had they had pretty incredible artists <laughs> running the show and uh, yeah yeah and so the game had lots of direct callbacks to uh, previous entries but kadama still insisted including insisted on in- including elements of narrative ambiguity and mystery in a 1993 developer interview, she stated this quote that I thought is just speaks to her point of view in a lot of ways. She said, quote, honestly, if I could have my way, I wouldn't use any human language for the monster names or names of towns and places. Fantasy Star is a story of a completely different world. But of course, for players, it wouldn't work to have a game that's nothing but nonsensical, unintelligible words. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And so... First of all, I think that dedication to words that don't mean stuff to the actual people that are going to play it is a little misguided. No matter how alien your world is, it should be easier to figure out what magic spells do other than just trying it and seeing what it does. <laughs> but Which There's a fair but, amount of that in this game. <laughs> like, yes, there is. Yes. Uh, and I, I think that is misguided. Is it actually 
that useful that I have to try the spell to figure out that it's fire one rather than just writing fire one on the spell. I don't know. Is it more immersive? I'm not sure. I can see the argument that it's we want to basically provide verms. I can't say the word verisimilitude. There it is. I got it out on this like alien solar system, but like sword is still called a sword. So why can't the fire spell just be called fire magic or something? Give me some sort of, give me something here. (laughs) Like there are to this day, there are still a few spells in this game that I probably don't fully understand what they do. <laughs> I, I'm totally there with you. Yeah. There's some stuff in this game that's just very mystifying. But at the same time, I felt like I kind of highlighted that quote because I felt like that I re- when uh, I was rec- researching the Skies of Arcadia episode that mm-hmm. we did, Apparently, recently, one of the the co-director said that he'd love to make a sequel to Skies of Arcadia, and then Reiko Kodama came out and said, "I don't see why we would need why we would need to everything that we you know everything that we needed to do we did in that game, which is admirable. Fair enough. Yeah, it's admirable, but it's also there were a number of very like ambiguous kind of plot threads in that game uh. that they could have built out. So. It's definitely, I think, a little insight into her point of view. Yeah, um, for sure. But you know what? I would take that over just complete and total fan service and as easy as possible. <laughs> Make it as easy as possible for the player at all times. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's true. Yeah. Yeah. And, and obviously both of us are big SMT guys and it's, I know what, Augie does and that's not I didn't know that meant fire either until I pushed the button to make it go. Right. Yeah. That's true. That's true. <laughs> we are SMT fans, so that's something in itself. Yeah. I was prepared for this madness. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of all that, I we can talk about the, the mechanics of this game uh, a little bit more. It's a pretty traditional JRPG in a lot of ways, but it does have a, a few unique wrinkles to it. Amongst those are there's two separate like special abilities. There's techniques and then there's skills. And techniques are like a magical attack that you use by spending technique points that they're they're yeah, just a little bit more like what we would generally think of as spells, right? In in most JRPGs, they use like an MP kind of equivalent. And they range from your standard elemental attacks to like gravity stuff and healing and your buffs and debuffs and to some degree at least. I think actually most of the best debuffs fall under skills, but there are a few. There's like Saner or whatever is like the first buff you get. That's a technique. Right. And most characters in the game, even ones that like, if this was a Final Fantasy, probably would not have magic. The main character Chaz have at least some facility with magic. It's basically everyone has magic except for the mecha characters, the androids like Demi and Ren. Mm-hmm. Um Although Demian Ren gets skills basically right off the bat. And skills are like a completely different set of abilities. They have a fixed number of uses, which for any D&D players out there, it feels a lot more like Vancean magic. 
from like Dungeons and Dragons where you have a set number of uses of that particular ability until you rest and then it resets. So it, it, it's, it has JRPG, MP spells, and then also Vancy and Magic on top of it for, for completely different stuff. The skills, it, yeah, are only refreshed at, say, points and ends, like Alice slash Chaz's house. And thus, it's better to save them until you really need them, rather than just blowing them on killing easier enemies. Although, as you get late into the game, it starts to be okay to blow some of the, the lesser ones on trash mobs, because you're probably going to only be spending like the real primo skills from the top of your list on bosses, but yeah. that's like super late game stuff. And then on top of all of that, as if we did not have enough mechanical goodness, <laughs> we have the cherry on top, which is, I'm going to talk about a little bit together here, is macros and combos, because these are like related concepts, in my personal opinion. Like, it's very hard to pull off the combo abilities without setting macros, I find, at least with any sort of reliability. Like, very early on, you might get a combo by accident, just like programming in some stuff. So how, how uh, Fantasy Star works is unlike, say, Final Fantasy, where you punch in an individual character's commands as they come up, you basically dial in your whole turn in uh, Fantasy Star at the beginning. And if... So with some spells and abilities, they can combine and make these really devastating special abilities, usually are really powerful, like area of effect attack so for example if you cast foy watt and sue which is the fire water and thunder abilities with three different characters dialed in that order specifically they'll combine to form the spell tri blaster which is like really powerful and hits a whole bunch of enemies and if you're using a walkthrough or you find it by accident this will make your day Mm -hmm. It, it makes so many encounters so much easier once you find some of this stuff at least early on i i think that combos actually become less useful once you reach end game but there are like several combo attacks throughout the game And in many cases, they involve mixing elemental effects with a technique so that the elemental spell will hit all enemies. And yeah, it's it's a pretty cool thing the first time you come across it, if you stumble across it without knowing. It, it, I I find it is mostly good for cleaning up trash really quickly. Because the action economy of it requires you to absorb multiple people's actions for a round it's somewhat less useful against bosses especially once you get to the mid and late game that's very true however there's not a lot of aoe spells in this game like single use single person use aoe spells and so if you want to blaze through a bunch of guys or grind effectively these combos are going to be extremely important and that leads us into talking about macros are exactly what what you would think if you're familiar with macros from anywhere else. Because they're incredibly ahead of their time, though. So in- incredibly ahead of their time. Like one of the things I put in the notes here is that as like a a 
premier Persona 2 apologist. <laughs> Combo magic and macros are like B&B JRPG stuff for me that like really turns some people off, I think. But like mechanically, Persona 2 is like the next generation successor to Fantasy Star 4 in some ways. It has a lot of that same stuff, which is not really in Persona 1, I don't remember. And, but yeah, like the, the, the level of stuff going on here, first of all, the only other 16-bit JRPG that I can think of off the top of my head that had combo magic in it was Chrono Trigger. So like, <laughs> you're in good company here, Fantasy Star 4. But yeah, so the macros are really great. It's, it ends up feeling to me a little bit like a evolution of a Dragon Quest style auto battle command, except that instead of just being able to say everybody attack like the auto battle command, mm-hmm. you can actually program a, a game plan up to six of them, I think, or something like that. Because like we said, battles in Fantasy Star 4 occur in rounds. And at the beginning of each round, you give all the characters in your party their command that will be executed in order of speed. And that includes enemies. So if you've got uh, a fast character and then the enemy is faster, it will be like your fastest character, an enemy, and then the rest of your party. Mm-hmm. But in order to do some of the powerful combo attacks, they have to be used together in order. So if you've got one of, like in that example, if you've got like the fast guy going first and the part of this combo it's not actually connected like the they have to actually be like adjacent to each other in the turn order in order for it to pop so you're not actually going to get your combo spell that way but the macros really let you set this up you can list put in whatever skills and techniques and put them in the specified order that you want and yeah, there, there are shortcuts you can set up to just set up your combo attacks mostly and really helpful, really streamlines the combat in a lot of ways. Like I said, it's like auto battle, except you can make it do anything. And that's amazing. Amazing. I usually had uh, three or four when I went through it this last time. I, I have an auto battle, one that's like my like alpha strike with the best when you absolutely have to do all the damage this round, that was <laughs> right. usually on B. And then I had one that was like, like this is there's one program for this is the first turn in a boss battle, which is like mostly buffs and setting up for a hard fight. And then there's one where it was like, this is the one where everyone just got hit for a huge amount of damage and you need to get everybody back on their feet. And so instead of having to like program every single, because also, for most of this, you're going to have at least four or five party members in your group. It isn't like a three-man party like 32-bit JRPGs did mostly. So it it takes a long time to set up a turn in this game if you do it manually all the time. So this is this is a really good and uh, nice, like player-friendly concession that they made, and it's really neat. I like it a lot. Yeah. And then the last major, like, unique mechanic is vehicles. And there are several vehicles throughout the game. They range from, like, your basic tank, it's like an APC practically, to uh, there's, like, a hover vehicle. And then at the very end, you rescue an ancient starship from beneath a 
a dungeon, basically. Um, And that spaceship has some really amazing traveling from planet to planet animations, I will point out. I love them a lot. But each of the land-based vehicles feature a main weapon and several skills that they can use. Because while you're traveling around on the map, you still get into random battles while you're in the vehicle. Mm -hmm. The random battles are... The mechanics of them are a little different. You've got different weapons. Yeah, yeah, it's a little different. It it feels it, it's like you only have one party member. Basically, your tank is the one party member, mm-hmm. and, and it, that one party member plays a lot like the mecha characters in your group, <laughs> which is like not always the best. Like personally, once uh, I, I the way I used vehicles in my most recent playthrough is I used them when I had to, and the moment that I did not have to, I would switch back to on land travel so that I would have access to all my magic. I don't know about you, but I, I personally like of all the incredible things in this game, the vehicle combat is a little bit of a miss for me. It's not, it's not, I'm like, Oh, I hate this, but it's, it also hobbles a lot of the really cool stuff that is going on in combat normally. And so it's like not my favorite thing personally. I think it's not idea it's not implemented as well as it could be but having played the previous games where you had vehicles but they would if you had random encounters you would just go back into your regular party battle mode just the sheer novelty of them yeah yeah um, I, I was definitely taken aback and and like surprised in in a pleasant sort of way the very first time it happened cuz also like your vision is it, it it's changed so it looks like a heads up display as if you're seeing the battle happen from inside the tank which is very neat they definitely put the work in it just because it lessens some of the other mechanical stuff it it's, it's, yeah. it's very limited yeah yeah and, what you and, and it, it almost got me killed a couple of times, honestly, because like <laughs> very early on, if you get jumped by a sandworm and you're in a tank, just hit run. Just hit run. Because Shihalu does not screw around, man. Don't, don't. Yeah, just don't. Yeah, you're, you're not going to have the experience where you're like, oh, I'm in this awesome tank. I'm going to take everything out. And so yeah. the enemies no. definitely scale with the uh, weaponry that you have at hand. Yeah. Yeah. Granted, if you fought a sandworm on foot at that point, you would be wiped instantly. Yeah, that, they definitely sell the idea that the tank is much cooler than you are when you first get it. <laughs> um, it just feels like playing Dragon Quest One is the problem a little bit as far as like the mechanical complexity. That's I know I keep harping on it, but it's just like the one wrinkle in an otherwise, to me, perfect JRPG. Yeah. But yeah. More of a cool, uh, cool novelty than mm-hmm. perfectly implemented feature. So yeah, let's move on to just the basic scenario of the game. The game takes place in AW2284, which is a thousand years after the events of Fantasy Star 2. After an event called the Great Collapse, much of the once thriving planet Motavia has been reduced to desert and life's become progressively more difficult for the planet's inhabitants. To make matters worse, there's been a marked increase in the numbers of biomonsters. 
<laughs> we were in a fantasy star game when uh, bio monsters just start showing up for no apparent reason. And bio uh, monsters is such a like an eighties Japanese pop culture entertainment word too. I really love it. Uh, me too. <laughs> me too. <laughs> we start the game out with the main characters who are bounty hunters, Chaz Ashley. <laughs> That's very eighties. <laughs> uh, and his mentor, Alice Brangwen. So can, move- you, can you believe the solar system got saved by a dude named Chaz? Oh. Like, <laughs> we'll get into Chaz. <laughs> yeah, I know that you have some opinions similar to mine. So yeah, yeah, we'll get to you, Chaz. Yeah, don't worry, we'll get to you right now. So uh, <laughs> Chaz is basically he's a young hunter who just graduated from his apprenticeship with Alice as the game begins. Chaz was headed for a rough future on the streets until Alice took him under her wing. He begins the story as Alice's sidekick, but eventually becomes the main protagonist of the story. Unfortunately. Um, yeah. Yeah. He's uh, basically just like your standard stock standard JRPG protagonist. Yeah. He's honorable, but good. Realistic, but he does have a temper. Yeah, he he he'll he'll whine about everything in a very Luke Skywalkery sort of way. Uh, if that's a temper, then I suppose. But mm-hmm. yeah, uh, uh, so okay, I think that the trick of taking what seems like a supporting character and making them into the ultimate hero is a cool idea, right? That when you first meet. Alice and Chaz, it definitely seems like Alice is the main character. If mm. for no other reason than she has the same name as the protagonist of the very first game of this series. Oh, yeah. And and for that to be subverted and for him to eventually rise up and become the protagonist, that's a really neat idea that you don't see a lot in JRPGs. Like, what if three discs or two discs into Final Fantasy VII, it wasn't the infamous character who died. I don't know if you've done it for the show or if you want to do that. Everybody knows, but you know what I'm talking about. If it wasn't that character, but the main character who died and then Tifa becomes the main character of final fantasy seven for the rest of the game, right? That's basically what's going on here. The problem is there's nothing to Chaz. He's got, there's nothing going on. And all, all you see him go through is like boring ass, basic, like <laughs> shonen protagonist problems. He doesn't like, like y- you would think that there would at least be like a a refusing the call period where he's, hey man, I'm not Alice. I can't lead this thing. I'm the sidekick. You get, I'm Robin. I'm not Batman. What are you talking about? But that there's, moment there's doesn't. There's a bit of that later on, but it's not, there's not a lot done with it. Yeah. And he just like, he doesn't have a lot of personality to him and he's just boring, unfortunately, which mm-hmm. wouldn't stand out nearly so bad. If all the other characters weren't interesting, is crazy. Uh, uh, like, just totally great. Like, all the other characters in this game are super interesting and make me smile. And I, ha- I have, like, serious moments. Like, maybe with the exception of, uh, what's her name? The cat girl. Oh, uh, what's her name? I want to say Ricky. Yeah, Rikia. Rikia. She, she's also pretty, like, standard boring protagonist in a lot of ways. But... Even she has more to her than Chaz does, who is 
he's here to be the protagonist. That is basically it. He's country rube who has everything explained to him in a lot of ways. I feel like he's that character who spends the whole game going, what? Dark Force? What? (laughs) Which, okay, so you need that guy. Someone has to have things explained to them. I get it. But just... Give him, give him one trait out of the norm. Just one. Give him one thing. I don't know. If if he was a character in an MST3K movie, his name would be like Beef Hardsteel or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yes. Yeah, he's definitely the, the one that they would call that, that trait <laughs> out for. And it doesn't help that his design is probably the least interesting of the main uh, protagonists either. He, he just looks like a guy. He's just like a blonde guy. Yeah. He's, yeah. He's so plain vanilla in a game that is so unique. It's very weird. (laughs) How about we uh, move on to a more interesting character, Alice, who's a veteran hunter. She's Chaz's mentor and his surrogate parent. She's the main character of the early part of the game. She's like brash, supremely confident. She's not above threatening people for money and or information if it makes her job easier. And she yeah, is like, she, she has no shame. I love that about her. She extorts one character for a whole like section of the game repeatedly. And what starts is just, it felt like in the first instance, it felt establishing that, oh, this is the Han Solo character of this game. I get it. She works for money. But as it went on, I was like, oh, this is a running joke. This is brilliant. Phenomenal. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah but she is really well known and well respected for being a uh, very powerful hunter of bio monsters but she's got a pretty enigmatic past yeah so i I will say because my knowledge of the fantasy star games is not as encyclopedic as say shimigami tensei i actually was a little fuzzy on whether or not this was the same Alice from Fantasy Star 1 or not. And it's not. Because, no, it definitely is not. Yeah, that's clear. But I I was like, uh, I never got to the end of PS1, and I can imagine that Alice eventually growing up to be this Alice. That (laughs) kind of works. So... Yep, that, a little error on my part, but I, I I was just like, either it is or it isn't. It doesn't seem to make a difference. <laughs> totally. So yeah, the third main character that you come across is uh, Han Malay. And uh, Han hails from the village of Krupp, and he's a son of an armor. He's uh, bored with forging weapons and determined to make his mark on the world. He greatly upset his father by going off to become a scholar at the Motavian Academy. He tags along after the principal of Motavia Academy hires Alice and Chaz to look into the monster infestation in the academy basement. And when it turns in, <laughs> and when it turns out to be when it turns out that there's more to the situation than meets the eyes, Alice squeezes him for cash. He's the one who gets squeezed for cash yeah. repeatedly yeah. to uh, accompany them on his way to try to get to the bottom of the mystery. So they, yeah. she wants yeah. to charge him for it, basically. Yeah. yeah, she basically forces Han to rent a party, an adventuring party, is how it ends up being portrayed. I don't think she ever actually cashes in on those, those threats of extortion, though. So Han gets off light. That's uh, true. <laughs> but uh, yeah, then we come to 
my favorite character in the game, which is Rune Walsh, who is an old friend of Alice's. Rune is extremely snarky. He is a blue-haired wizard who possesses a gift rarely seen in Algo in these days, which is the ability to perform true magic, which he has that ability for an amazing twist reason that we'll get to later. Initially, he only accompanies the party very briefly. He basically escorts them from one town to another. I was like, when he left the party that first time, I was like, okay, bye, I guess. Just showed up, but okay. But after they face an unexpected tragedy later, he joins up for real. And Rune is great. He is my favorite. He, I, I love that he and Chaz are basically frenemies for most of the game. Like, they... Chaz tries to engage in like witty repartee with Rune, and it almost always ends with Rune absolutely dunking on him, which never fails to make me either smile or laugh. And the sort of good natured ribbing that they give each other throughout the game is, I think, a high point of the plot. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And there's other, we'll get to it, but there's other elements about him that are. Very cool. Very ah, he's, he's so cool. What a neat idea for a character, but mm. we'll get to it. Yeah. Next up, we have Grizz, who is a Motavian warrior. Uh, and Motavians look like a, a combination between a Furby and a an Ewok, kind of. They're a little taller than that, maybe, but like their faces remind me very much of Furbies, but they're more Ewok-like in body. And Grizz lives to avenge his parents who were killed when the dark wizard Zeo, who is a very cool villain, destroyed his village of Molcom. I think that's how you pronounce that. Molcom? Is that? Yeah, I don't know. We, we don't say these words out loud very much. The only other surviving member of his family is his little sister, Pana, who he is guarding uh, in the Tower of Tanoi when we first encounter him. And then we have Rika. Rika is a Newman, which is a cat girl, basically. A genetically engineered being created in an underground laboratory by the computer seed, which is like a super artificial intelligence thing. Though she is only a year old, she looks like a young adult woman, which I guess is less creepy than the preteen looking figures that are actually in a thousand year old dragon. But yeah, actually I read in that interview, I did read an interesting uh, point that this is an ongoing fantasy star trope and they had a similar character in fantasy star too. And I guess Reiko Kodama mm-hmm. felt like she didn't really get much character development in the previous game that, figure yeah and she also felt it wasn't convincing that she had just she was like a newborn that she had just been born yeah 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 and so they definitely wanted to play that up in this game yeah yeah she possesses an optimistic personality and a curiosity you'd expect of someone who had just been created she's a love interest for Chaz at various points which is a little weird, given that she's only a year old, but yeah, stuff. All right, so uh, Rika's fine, though. I don't want to harp on that too much. It's just, it's she's a fine character. That little factoid about is just a little weird. I, I like her perfectly fine. Next up, we have Demi, and Demi is 
an android who is created to serve as the like system control center for the climate systems of Motavia. The fact that she is not there doing that is a big plot point through the early parts of the game because like they're having climate change problems on Motavia basically. And access to Nervous, the artificial system responsible for supplying energy for the remaining systems of Motavia is the thing that you're trying to drive towards for a lot of that, the demi chapters of the game. Mm -hmm. And almost immediately after those things happen with Demi, we meet Ren, who is Demi's quote unquote master, whatever that means. And uh, it's never explained. Uh, She just, she calls him her master all the time. And I'm like, what does that mean to robots? What is that? What what do you think this means? What does this mean in this context? If you teach her how to be a person, I don't know. It's a senpai robot. Yeah. He is her, her senpai bot. And he has been placed on the artificial satellite of Zelen, which is, a, a location that basically exists just for you to get Ren. A- after you shut down Nervous, Demi suggests that you go to Zelen because since it was theorized, that's where the abnormal commands were being issued from. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. A- and uh, he joins the party after suggesting that the problems lie in Curon, which made Zelen's power and communication shut down which is a different satellite that is an actual dungeon. And then after doing some stuff that we will get into when we go go through the scenario, you eventually meet Raja, who is a carefree priest in a remote temple in which the party's emergency space shuttle crash landed on. I I really like Raja. He's a quirky character. He reminds me of a Dragon Ball character a little bit. Oh, yeah, yeah, I can see that. It's very, just like corny puns and dad jokes this is right yeah he brags a lot about drinking (laughs) like he looks like he's anamic a little bit he reminds me a lot of toriyama characters actually but uh, yeah he forces his way onto the party as a consequence of them blowing up his temple while he was in it which is not cool although he, he does con quite a bit out of them above and beyond that over the course of his like turn in the party then after that eventually they meet kyra tyranny is that how that would be pronounced tyranny tyranny a hot-blooded esper stationed in meese to help villagers infected by a degenerative disease and she was an okay character i enjoyed having her in the party the difference between a wizard and an esper is nebulous, but yeah. especially since the wizard in your party is like the head of the esper, it's oh, it's complicated. We'll get that to that later. And then lastly, I mean, the easiest way to think of it is they're almost like different, like religious cults or something like that. Yeah, as far as I know, esper like literally means like ESP or as in right. someone who has psychic powers. It's implied that Rune knows like actual writing down like runes, magic, right? Saying magic words does magic where whereas Kyra is using psychic powers to simulate similar effects perhaps. But it's not important to this story, so it doesn't really matter. No, um, that's that's some deep lore, if you want to. Think <laughs> it. 
Yeah. But the last party member that we have for a short period of time is Seth, who is a traveling archaeologist who encourages the party on the Soldier's Temple Island near Krupp. He asked to tag along, saying that the infestation of monsters in the caves has made it hard for him to continue his research. And maybe the uh, party gets a little more than they expected with old Seth there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We've got a lot to say about <laughs> Seth. <laughs> Coming up. Started out with the story of the game. We uh, just broke this into uh, like kind of mini chapters, just to because there's so many. Even if the game itself doesn't use the chapter structure, it, it it has a lot of different sort of sub threads going on. So yeah, we started out at the academy basement, and so upon arrival in Piata, Chaz and Alice enter the academy, and they meet with the headmaster. He informs them that uh, some particular, some peculiar bio-monsters called Xenophalg have infiltrated the academy, and uh, they seem to have made the basement their headquarters. Once he sends them off, Alice comments uh, on the fact that the headmaster is behaving kind of shady. They go to the basement en- entrance, and they're greeted by Han, who's uh, one of uh, Professor Holt's students and has been waiting for them to arrive. This begins Alice basically trying to extort Han. She pressures Han into paying her uh, 
100 Masita, Masita's being, Masita being the money in the Fantasy Star universe, in order for him to be able to accompany the hunters into the basement to investigate the monster outbreak. <laughs> Give us 100 bucks to risk your life. That's yeah. not a good deal. <laughs> and to do what you were told by your boss to do. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, at the very bottom of the basement, the group finds large test tubes with bizarre monsters growing in them. They fight and defeat an Iglanova, which is a large biomonster, which just happened to be the source of the invasion. The group then goes back to the headmaster and they confront him about his knowledge of the problem. He confesses that he knew the root of the problem was in Birth Valley and he hadn't ordered an investigation because a black magician named Zio warned him to keep away. Zio. This is the first we hear of Zio, who is a very cool character. Zio threatened to turn the headmaster into stone if he investigated it. And he he proved that he could do this by showing one of the headmaster's uh, research team turned into stone. Yeah, he's not effing around. Like, Zio will screw you, will ruin your whole day. He's not a good person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And if you're, yeah, if you're just like normal academic, you're like, yeah, oh, fuck that. I'm not going to deal with that. Yeah. <laughs> or an administrator at a school. Done. So they've got a mystery on their hands about who Zio is and how he could control the kind of ancient magic that would turn people into stone. So the group travels to Earth to uh, Birth Valley to find Professor Holt. They're shocked to find that everyone in the town has been turned to stone. Alice tells Han that she knows of a cure called Ashline, which can be found in the Matavian village, Molcom, which is just so just south of Zima. Jumping at the chance to help Professor Holt, Han arranges passage with Alice and Chaz by paying them another 300 Masita. <laughs> yeah, and almost every one of these extortions involves one of those multi-panel like, cutscene things, and there's almost always a panel of Alice's smirking face as she makes <laughs> yeah. Chaz pay more money, which is just beautiful. I love you, Alice. I know. She's so great. <laughs> so once they arrive in Molcom, the group finds the town completely devastated, except for a lone man in white robes who's standing in the middle of the town. When you got here the first time, did you think that this was a boss battle? Because I definitely was like, oh boy, I'm going to have to fight this guy. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, I thought, oh, maybe this is... Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But um, it isn't. What's that? I said, but it isn't. No, it isn't. He uh, is, in fact, uh, Rune Walsh, a mysterious wizard who has a very kind of ambiguous and possibly romantic history with Alice. Yeah, he, he's definitely the sexiest Obi-Wan Kenobi that we've gotten in the JRPG in quite some time. <laughs> yeah. And it might be worth mentioning here that Fantasy Star has never been very apologetic about its uh, Star Wars lists. No, Zio is definitely Darth Vader. So, like, spoiler yeah. warning. He's not Chaz's dad, as far as I know. But in all other ways, uh, Zio is basically Darth Vader. He even has a similar... How Darth Vader has that panel of lights on his chest piece. Mm-hmm. Zio has 
one in a very similar place on his armor. Yeah, um, that's true. That's true. Rune uh, Rune gives uh, Chaz a little shit already. He's starting himself yeah. out. Yeah, good, 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 good foot. And he invites himself into the party. Chaz objects a little bit, but tells the group to go to Krupp, then north to Tano to find the Ash Line, which is the, the cure for the Stone Curse. Han seems uneasy going to Krupp because it's actually his hometown. And yeah. since his father is not proud of him pursuing an academic <laughs> career and he's been disinherited, he doesn't want to really run into his pops. I loved this story point because when he first starts talking about not wanting to go there and it's revealed it's his hometown, I thought it was because something either bad happened to him or he did something bad. And then when I found out that the reason he doesn't want to go there is because he doesn't want us to find out that his life in this town was embarrassing. I was just like, that is so precious. You are adorable. (laughs) It's great. It's always it's also hilarious that the dad was like, "I want you to be a, a welder, or whatever." <laughs> yeah, you know. it's so opposite of what you usually get, where it's like a kid wants to be like a baseball star, and his dad's no, go be a doctor. It's like the inverse of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. It's funny. Once I get there, they also get to meet Han's fiance, Saya, who teaches children in the local school. Once it's pretty much done in uh, Han, they head over to uh, Tano, and Rune opens up the tunnel entrance, revealing that he's a wizard. Gasp! We had no idea yeah. that the man wearing the white wizard robes was a wizard. Imagine that. <laughs> uh, once they got there, now they're, now they're in Tano, the group visits the village elder, Grandfather Doran who has some funny stories to tell and has some history with uh, Rune. Do you want everybody, to everybody does, it seems. Oh, yeah. There's a reason for that. So at this point, Grizz joins the group, and he guides them through this storehouse where the ash line is being stored. And meanwhile, Grandfather Dorn and Rune go off on a secret mission. And after retrieving the ash line, the group makes their way back to Zema to cure the villagers and the scientists. Grizz uh, decides to accompany the group to avenge his friends and family, because like he eventually cottons on to the fact that their quest is probably going to lead them into conflict with Zeo, and he's I hate that guy too! Yeah. Because, yeah, he killed all of Grizz's friends and family in Malcolm, except for his sister, like we said. He doesn't want anything to get in the way of his vengeance. That's Grizz's driving thing early on i say early on but it it should be remarked that this game is very like chapter like in its party structure Mm -hmm. uh in an almost like final fantasy 4 sort of way so outside of like main characters like you get like very short arcs that end and then the character just shows up at the end to be cool or whatever that's mostly how it goes yeah yeah it's episodic like that or you get these like little vignettes with uh, certain characters yeah except for your like core really important ones yeah um 
you know, except for Chaz, who doesn't have an arc at all. He's, he no, just yeah. exists to be you in this world, basically. Just pour whatever you are into this guy, because he's empty. After curing everyone of the stone curse, cur- curse? curse, they plan to go their separate ways when suddenly there's a big explosion and the group goes to investigate in front of Birth Valley and Iglanova, like the one they encountered at Piata, shows up to terrorize the town folk. And after defeating it, the group enters Birth Valley. This was the first dungeon, Birth Valley, that I started to struggle a little bit with and had to like actually grind a bit mm-hmm. in order to get through it. It's pretty tough. Going deeper in, they find some of Professor Holt's team lying on the floor and hurt. Uh, One of the professor's team states that the professor went ahead inside. Um, Worried about the professor, the group goes in to investigate, where I I don't know what I expected to be in the depths of Birth Valley, but it was not this. uh, (laughs) Because inside, they find a structure of a super advanced civilization. It's like a techno fortress, basically. Mm -hmm. Very cool palette set, actually. I would like it a lot for JRPG Maker. But this is one of the things that I love about Fantasy Star as a series is that you could have a very bog standard dungeon aesthetically, and then all of a sudden it turns into this cool, like, techno futuristic thing. Yeah, because even though they've said, oh yeah, it's like 2240 or whatever, so giving you a feeling that this takes place in the future, and there's like people with laser rifles and stuff, like for the most part, what you've encountered has felt pretty Dragon Questy, honestly, though, mm-hmm. with the serial numbers filed off. And then you get here and it's, whoa, okay, there's some real sci-fi stuff going on in this world. It's funny, Fletch and I recently did an episode on Star Ocean, and Star Ocean is the exact opposite of Fantasy (laughs) Star, where you think you're going to get a cool sci-fi RPG, and instead you're going to get some bog-standard Dragon Quest clone. (laughs) I want to love you, Star Ocean. Why won't you let me love you? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But anyway. We had a lot to say about that, but yeah. (laughs) So Chaz and Han are scared of the uh, scanners going off. And Alice like really makes fun of the two of them for being so jumpy. I wondered, they don't really get into it, but it it made me wonder if Alice had encountered like super futuristic technology before, because she's super blasé about it and seems to know what's going on and in a way that they don't. So I thought, when I was playing through it the first time that they were like foreshadowing that Alice was maybe from some more advanced civilization or something like that. But no, that also isn't a thing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think it's just, just, she's just cool. That, yeah. She's cool. And she, probably she's come across something like this in her, in her travels. Yeah. She, she's m- more well-traveled than them. So she probably just raided another vault somewhere or something. But anyway, eventually they find Professor Holt, who is being protected by Rika, who is a Newman, as previously described. One, one of the races that you can select once Fantasy Star Online comes around. You can play a Newman if you want. The less said about Fantasy Online, the better, in my opinion. <laughs> but... PSO is not Final Fantasy fourteen. okay? It is not mm-hmm. like Fantasy Star, but an MMO. It is like its own thing. Yeah. And 
it hurts less if you think about it like that. But anyway, that's true. <laughs> um, I'm still nursing my wounds 20 years later. <laughs> yeah, I, I understand. I, I feel the same way. I was very excited for PSO and then it happened and I was like, oh, this is cool. In yeah. A very different way than what I was hoping for, but it's cool. Anyway, Chaz and the team, they go through and speak to Seed, who again is the like advanced AI that is residing in the center of this like techno fortress that they've been raiding up to this point. And it really does feel like a raid, honestly. Like it's the difficulty once you start fighting robots at first is like it's noticeable you have to change your tactics entirely like different spells that you didn't have a lot of use for before suddenly become very important obviously you switch from fire magic to lightning magic right things like that but like also just like all the robots are very hard to kill when you first get here i feel like yeah yeah but seed he informs the team that the monster outbreak does in fact stem from the structure they're in, which is the bio lab. It's like a, a, a final level in a resident evil game. Mm-hmm. Seed and, and Rika inform the party that they can stop the monsters by shutting down all the control systems, including nervous, the control system of all of Matavia. However, they would need to find Demi, the Android who is the one who can control Nervous in order to do all of that. Unfortunately, she's being held captive by Zeo, so they're going to have to uh, go fight the big bad, as or what seems like the big bad right now. And uh, Seed asks if Rika can go with them, and Alice agrees. So as the group uh, leaves Birth Valley, Rika is has like a childlike astonishment and amazement about how beautiful the skies and the flowers are. Seed confirms that everybody outside of the bio lab slash Birth Valley has has left. So he activates a self destruct sequence that blows up Birth Valley, blocking the entrance. Rika's devastated by this sacrifice, but. Alice tells her that they've got to just carry on Seed's will. Um, On their way to rescue Demi from Zeo, the group comes upon a partially destroyed town called Nalia. Uh, They're told that the town was devastated by a falling object located to the west of town. Once they investigate, the group comes across another structure from an advanced civilization. Inside, they find malfunctioning robots and information about the structure itself. It seems that it's a uh, remnant of a ship from the survivors of Parma who never made it to Motavia and died during the ship's orbit of the planet for a thousand years. It's really grim. That is really fucking grim. Um, (laughs) The group continues onward to, which is Chaz and Alice's hometown for a uh, day of rest before leaving for uh, Kateri. And upon arriving in Kadari, the group finds a church Full of uh, Zio's worshippers. I, I love these guys because they're so like nakedly dedicated to evil. And if you walk up to them and talk to them, they're just like, why would you not want to worship evil though? Evil <laughs> is the best. Oh, I know. I know. <laughs> yeah. I just love those NPCs. They crack me up. I was just like, 
I, I, I was like imagining like what my character is supposed to say in response to these text boxes. And it's just, you have to imagine Chaz is just, I don't even know what to say to that. I'm just going to walk away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that's what I assumed. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. They uh, get to the entrance of Zeo's fort and uh, encounter a magical barrier that blocks uh, the way down a set of stairs. They figure that uh, Demi is held capture held captive at the top of the tower, so the group fights their way to the top, including killing one of Zio's top lieutenants, Juza. The group finds and frees Demi, who heals their wounds with uh, her restorative medic power. Zio reveals himself from the shadows and explains that he plans to wipe out the Algo Star system at the behest of his god. Dark Force! Dark Force, it's probably worth mentioning, that Dark Force basically comes every thousand years and yeah. is the major antagonist of all the Fantasy Star games. And um, yeah, so like most big fantasy JRPG series have a okay, now we're gonna kill God segment at the end. And in Fantasy Star, that god is always Dark Force. Yeah, yeah, totally, <laughs> totally. But I really do appreciate like the continuity that it's the same. Yeah. It's the same figure every time, and yep. each each of our plucky adventure squads just have to put him back down again for another thousand years. <laughs> Though we do learn a few uh, new wrinkles about what what was going on with him in this yeah, true. game. Zio just keeps on going and on about how he's going to bring death to all that lives before he assaults the group. And uh, no matter how hard they try, they can't break through Zio's magic barrier to hurt him. Yeah. He's, he's pretty smug about this as I recall too. Oh yeah. He's a real, he's a real (laughs) shit. (laughs) He slowly prepares a devastating attack, which is the black energy wave spell. Intending to hit Chaz, Alice jumps in front of the dark magic and takes the blow head on. Yeah. With Alice grievously wounded, the group escapes the battle and they teleport to Krupp. Yeah, this was like, it it doesn't sound like a a big deal now. That sounds pretty straightforward, but 16-bit JRPGs mostly didn't do this sort of thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, there's there's clearly going to be some like special like magic, like MacGuffin or something that saves her. Yeah. (laughs) We'll see about that. Everyone is really worried about Alice as they should be because it sure seems like she's dying. Who she is like resisting all kinds of treatment and uh, seems possessed basically by some sort of evil power. Mm -hmm. And uh, in a fit of agony, Alice wakes up and with some difficulty implores Chaz to go find Rune. And Grizz states that Grandfather Doran and Rune went to Ladya Tower to find something. An important something with future implications, but not having any way to traverse the quicksand separating them from Termi to Leda Tower, Demi reveals that she knows of a vehicle called the Land Rover located in a small facility just south of Krupp. And this is your first vehicle for the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, Demi reveals that Nervous lies under Zeo's fort and is sealed by 
a the magical impassable barrier, uh, traversing the landscape of Matavia to Termi, the group comes upon an odd-looking building. Demi reveals that it's one of Matavia's control systems. The group is once again assaulted by malfunctioning robots. Again, robots are just real hard uh, compared to uh, biomonsters most of the time. Yeah, they are. Um, and every time they're like, all right, robots are back. I was always like, shit. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they make their way to the main computer console and shut the system down. And the group then makes their way to the Lady of Tower. They are once again assaulted by Zeo's monsters, along with the guardians of the tower, the ghostly haunts, who were they the boss battle for the, that tower? I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, I believe they are. Yeah. It's been a little bit. <laughs> Eventually, Chaz and company find Rune on the second floor of the tower. After informing Rune of what is happening to Alice, he insists that they must get to the top of the tower to find a staff called the Psycho Wand. I love uh, that name. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a great name. It's a very Japanese, like, psychic power-related naming structure. And... Also, it has a special ability all of its own. Do you know about the Psycho Wand's special ability? That you can use it in combat to do a unique magical ability? I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. If you go into items while you have the Psycho Wand and use it, it produces a very unique magical ability that, as I recall, allows you to circumvent a particularly particularly difficult uh, boss battle or encounter of some kind. I can't remember which one, though. I'm pretty sure it was a boss battle, and I was following a guide, and they were like, hey, just so you know, Psycho Wand will let you just win this fight. And I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) That's so Um, cool. That's really cool, because otherwise it just seems like a single-use kind of another like single-use MacGuffin. Yeah, it's a pretty powerful, at least for a little bit, it's it's a fairly powerful staff that Rune can have equipped, but it does get outpaced in that sense pretty quickly. But yeah, as far as I know, no other items can be used from the items list menu in, in this way to produce a special effect. I think it's just the Psycho Wand, but I could be mistaken. I am not an expert in this game, just a fan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they have to get the Psycho Wand because Rune claims that it's the only way they can defeat Zio. basically because it's the only way they can get the, that shield down. Once they reach the top of the tower, they see that there is a barrier around the chest that holds the wand. After breaking the barrier, the group is confronted by one of Zio's accomplices. Oh boy, how to pronounce this name? Guy Ligera, maybe? Um, sure. A lot of these names look like they were never actually said out loud by a primary English-speaking person. So no, and there's no voice in the no. game. So yeah. Yeah. this is many years before voice acting became yeah. a going concern. After the gru- grueling battle, Guy Laguerre is slain, and Rune claims the Psycho Bond. So that's all cool. Rune, Rika, and Demi sense something is wrong. Yeah, there, there's like a tremor in the force, basically. Like, mm-hmm. everyone with, like, special powers is suddenly... And the group rushes back to Krupp. Alice is on her deathbed, very obviously, like, dying for real, and speaks to Rune, telling him to help Chaz in his quest. 
Alex then acknowledges Chaz as, quote, an honorable adult. Yeah, you've gone, yeah. Congratulations. You've grown up kid. real good, kid. Yeah, you've, you've graduated to protagonist class and tells him that he will have to carve out his destiny on his own. Her last words are, Chaz, thank you. And then Alice dies in a very heartfelt scene. And yeah, it still packs a punch. Again, those manga panel scenes for silent reaction shots in this are great. Like Chaz cries and yells in anguish. Mm -hmm. Um, Rune turns towards the shadows and Rika bursts into tears. All the other characters show their sadness over this as well. And yeah, yeah. it's really affecting. Not only surprising for the era of the game that they did this with what was seeming to be the main protagonist. But yeah, it really does pack a punch. Yeah. It, I, I knew it was coming even because I had heard on message boards back in the day, like when people were talking about final fantasy seven, Sega kids would be like, yeah, it's not the first one. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and, and, and so I had it spoiled by butthurt Sega kids trying to impress upon me the fact that, no, sometimes Fantasy Star does do it before Final Fantasy. But even it was a pretty impactful moment there. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and like they go through the full nine yards. Like they show that they show them burying Alice in, in Krupp's cemetery. And her, her grave is like a, a place that you can go to throughout the game. And if you push the the like use command on her grave chaz will say something to her like very early on it's just i wish you were here but i th- i'm pretty sure it actually changes as he quote unquote changes as a character yeah yeah there are a few moments where the uh, dialogue options are like pretty dynamic yeah and speaking of like krupp also when you first come to Krupp, if you go to the like upper left-hand corner, you find that Alice has a house here, and it's basically like an inn you don't have to pay for, because <laughs> it's just like her house, and you just can spend the night there and chill out and whatever. And whenever you walk into it, it would bring up like a title card that says like Alice's house or whatever. And after she dies, if you go into that house, it says Chaz's house. And I, I think that, like, the first time I saw that, I was like, oh, man. Like, <laughs> it's like just another little reminder that Alice is dead. Yeah. Drive, but, uh, drive the knife in a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. And uh, once Chaz and Rune finish the whole ceremony, Rika approaches Chaz, who, being quite new to the world, is inundated with emotions about Alice's death. This is like the one and only person she's ever known who's ever died. She's like a child trying Mm -hmm. to grapple with death for the first time and instinctively reaches out to Chaz for consolation, which is like the beginning of the most boring romance subplot in a lot of JRPGs, but whatever, it's fine. (laughs) Not a whole lot to it, but they they come together over this and they they have a thing and that kind of culminates near the end. Yeah. Whatever, it's fine. I, I don't hate it. 
It it just is. But ha- having no real time to mourn the loss of Alice, the group prepares for the fight against Zio. And this really does, like, I, I mentioned this to you in, in the green room before the show started, but Fantasy Star 4 sure is like a trilogy of JRPGs in one game. Mm-hmm. And this really does feel like them gearing up for the end of game one. Because they're like, we're going to get that bastard Zeo. We're going to finally... If I didn't know that this was like a multi-planet spanning adventure, I could very easily be convinced that this was them gearing up for the end of the game. Yeah. Um, They make their way back to Zeo's fort. And at that impassable barrier, Rune uses the Psycho Wand to dispel it. And that's the MacGuffin-y use of Psycho Wand outside of its mechanical use I described before. And they make their way down to Nervous, and the group's progress is hindered by Zeo's guards and more robots. Once they reach the central core, they are, of course, confronted by the Dark Lord himself, Zeo. So uh, Zeo just immediately attacks the group, and uh, Rune is able to now dispel Zeo's magic barrier which allows the group to fight Zeo on even ground. It's still a really intense battle. He yeah. beat me at least twice before I finally defeated him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it will kick the crap out of you. But once you do defeat Zeo, he is very angry that he's been uh, betrayed by Dark Force's promise of immortality as he explodes in a shower of white light. And uh, his last words are, no, this can't be. I'm supposed to be immortal. Oh, <coughs> oh, why? Why did you abandon me? Dark 4 R. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, Zio, as tough as he was, is just a tool of yeah. a very powerful force. It's time for some victory celebrations. Chaz and Grizz partied up a little bit. And Demi states that for her to attempt to gain control of the Motavian systems, she has to insert herself into Nervous's core itself. Yeah. This was one of the more contrived reasons for a party member to leave the group, I felt, where Mm -hmm. I was like, so we got to slot you in like a USB card? That's a little weird, but okay. Are you okay with it? I I know, but they are having to make a sacrifice to do this. Once she's successfully inserted, (laughs) she shuts down the malfunctioning systems, but she finds out that the orders for the systems were actually coming from the main control satellite, Zelen. Yeah. Rika says uh, that her and C lost contact with Zelen and its sole occupant, Ren. Uh, this is a different Ren unit than the one that you saw in Fantasy Star 3. But yeah. uh, eventually, the, the Fantasy Star lore would basically describe this model of Android as being, quote, a Ren. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is basically a retcon of them using the same name for a similar looking robot in two different mainline titles. I think so too. And for a while, I thought. Oh, they're the same. They're the same. But they're not. They're just yeah. the model. Uh, like, like with Alice, it's just a similar character. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, they lost contact with Zelen and Ren a while back, and they haven't been able to reestablish contact. 
Chaz wonders how they're going to get to Zellin since it's in outer space. And Demi reveals that there's a functioning space shuttle that can take them to Zellin just conveniently. Very convenient. Demi says that she can't accompany the group to meet Ren since she needs to stay inside of Nervous to get the systems under control. The group takes the shuttle up to Zellin where they meet Ren. Unfortunately, Ren's also not in control of the orders being sent out to the planetary control systems. Turns out that there is another rogue sister satellite, Curran, which is the one sending out the orders. So just a sec here. When I played through this the last time, I thought this was really weird that there were that they went out of their way to have this like two satellite thing. Doesn't it make more sense for there to just be one satellite, Curran, and that you just meet Ren at the beginning of it, and then he's oh, there's a problem with the satellite. We need to do the dungeon. Like, why are there two satellites? Is there a good reason for that you can think of? I think that the only good reason is that. So you don't think Ren is like complicit in the oh. shit that's going down. That's yeah, the only narrative reason I can think of for it. Yeah. It just seems weird that they're like, go to the satellite and then you go there and you immediately meet Ren. And it's the only thing that's up there. It's just a box to give you Ren. Mm-hmm. And then Ren is go to this other satellite. I'm like, huh? Okie dokie. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, Karen was uh, never meant to be functional, but uh, something happened where it suddenly came online and it, it overtook Zelen's position in the chain of system control. So uh, Ren joins up with the group to uh, go to Karen to fix the issues. Yeah, and to replace and, Demi in the party. <laughs> exactly. crash land on Desolus and uh, oh oh <laughs> actually that's where we're going with it huh okay yeah uh, uh, on the way to their destination though the ship gets sabotaged by an agent of dark force the chaos sorcerer who seems very unique and scary right now but don't worry he'll be a regular mob by the end of the game mm-hmm. he tells them he won't let them get to 
Kiran, but is defeated. He is defeated, but he does stop them from getting to Kiran. So yeah. uh, kind of succeeds in his quest or whatever, <laughs> because they have a JRPG battle on the inside of a spaceship and the spaceship don't take it so good. <laughs> <laughs> like using guns in a real aircraft, you know? Yeah. Not a good idea. Like, not not yeah. a great plan. Yeah. No, <laughs> <laughs> they're not built for that. Uh, but since he'd already uh, broken the engines of the shuttle, Ren says that he'll be able to manage a crash landing on Dizolus since it's closer than Matavia. So the ship crashes and nearly wipes out a local temple in the process. And it's at this point that we meet the wise cracking alien green skinned priest Raja of the Gumbius Temple. The, some <laughs> kind of questionable names in this. <laughs> <laughs> but what JRPG would it be worth its salt if it didn't have some like names that make English speakers go, that doesn't sound <laughs> yeah. as cool as you think it does. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, At the same time, like Raja is such a goofball that kind of, yeah, 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 that's true. That's true. Yeah. And, and the Raja and his people worship something called the eclipse torch as a holy symbol. We'll get our hands on that later. They ask Raja if he knows if there's any spaceships on the planet. And Raja says that he does know of, of one, at least, but will only tell them if he can accompany them since he's been itching for an interesting adventure. And Rika finds him funny despite his bad jokes. Maybe because of his bad jokes it seems mm. like the implicate like this is something that's definitely not going to be caught in translation but it seems like rika is the only person in the party who like genuinely finds raja funny like she like responds to his humor and which he he continuously finds delightful during his chapter here they're just dad jokes and she's practically yeah, and she, a baby yeah yeah it's perfect yeah I didn't even think about that, but that that does totally line up. Oh, man. I I didn't even... So the way I played through this game last was in, like, major chunks, and I'd completely forgotten that Rika was one year old, and that actually does really recontextualize her love of Raj's dumbass jokes. (laughs) Yeah, it does. She she literally doesn't know any better. (laughs) It's it's something about her age that's that's less creepy. Yeah, yeah. I didn't even think of that. That's wonderful. Raja tells everyone that there's a Armenian town not too far away that's just named Tyler. He seems like a skateboarder bro out of like some like yeah. 90s TV show. Yeah, the planet is called Dizolus. The, the te- temple's called Gumbius. And this town is called Tyler? What? <laughs> what? It's, it's a pretty radical town, dude. <laughs> I think it's a human town and that's what that's about. But even, did they just name it? Did the, I wonder if it was a situation where they're like, look, we're making a town who, who wants to name it. And some dude named Tyler was like dibs <laughs> and he just named it after himself. And they were like, fuck, we did say that he could name the town, but he just literally named it after himself. Okay. Someone named Tyler seems like the kind of person who'd name a town after himself. <laughs> sure. Yeah. No offense to any Tyler's listening. <laughs> right, yeah. 
so yeah so he tells them about tyler the town not the individual <laughs> that, that, the that we've, we've yeah we've, that we made up yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah he doesn't mention the guy we made up because he doesn't exist uh, it's rumored that the spaceship the paramenians came in on after the destruction of parma is still there uh, I can't remember. Was Parma destroyed in a previous game, or did that happen between games? Was that a Fantasy Star Three thing? Because I didn't play too much Fantasy Star Three. That game's not good. I feel this, uh, feel like talking about Fantasy Star Three gives away too much of a spoiler. Like, okay, does it happen but, in one of the other games? At least is, um, that, is that something we can say? Because I, I don't actually know. No, I played. I believe- Basically all of one and all of four and two and three are a total blank to me. So it's been a long time since I played two, but I believe it's happened since two. Okay. All right. Gotcha. All right. Anyway. So that at, they set out to find Tyler and Raja informs them that the snowstorm they're having is the worst he can remember and is being caused by demons in a place called Garabek Tower. This, this becomes a running joke, actually, where he keeps mentioning this Garabek Tower and all of the other characters keep theorizing other things they could potentially be. And he's, look, guys, I'm telling you, it's demons, it's Garabek Tower. That is what it is. And they're like, no, it's got to be like climate change like it was on the other planet or aliens or robots. or. And he's like, no, it's demons, it's at Garabic. I, I live here. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they never believe him. Um. <laughs> and, and then when it turns out that he's absolutely correct, he's just what? What have I been saying this whole time? It's very funny. This this game has a, a, a certain sense of humor about it. It's actually dry in some ways. A dry humor. There are obviously jokes that are correct, but like. Uh, a lot of it is very like situational humor that could very easily slide over your head because you're not expecting a JRPG to be funny in that way, I think. Yeah, especially one of this era. Right, yeah, totally. But uh, yeah, so yeah, as previously mentioned, Ren dismisses it in this case and states it's probably more weather control stuff. And uh, Rosh is just like, all right, whatever, dude, but it's demons and it's this temple. So when you're ready for that, <laughs> we'll go do that. Okay. Um, but having no other choice, the group heads to Tyler, the town where they talk to the village elder who is not named Tyler. And the elder says that it's been a long held legend that the ship is buried somewhere nearby the town and is in working order. That's a very specific legend, by the way. That <laughs> the buried thing, that seems like a legend, but the fact that they would have legendary about it being functional seems weird to me. But that I guess they just seem weird. <laughs> player to not be discouraged or something. I don't know. Um, but uh, yeah, so the, the elder says that there may be hints at the, the grave site of the town's founder and pilot of the spaceship, who I believe is just named Ryan. That uh, sounds right. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's not in the notes, but it's like Chaz goes to the town, Tyler and goes to the grave of Ryan. It's what is <laughs> these basic white dude names. It's so, <laughs> it's so weird to me. I'm not used to it. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, the, the group heads over to uh, the grave of Ryan to find clues 
and basically just discover like a, a panel. Chaz just like accidentally finds the a, a control panel that opens an underground passage, and they make their way through uh, the cavern. There, it's like a mini dungeon, I think, and they discover the ship there is named the lands uh, the landale or landsdale i can't remember the landale um, yeah after uh, the legendary heroine of the first game alice landale mm-hmm. oh yeah yeah that's right yeah so, so that's a, a cool little thing i wonder who named their spaceship after alice though i think she's pretty much considered we see statues of her and whatnot so she's considered yeah that's, sort that's of true. a legendary figure it's um, like naming your ship the king arthur or something I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. It works. It's a yeah. nice callback. Sure. I don't mean to look askance at all of this stuff in a row. It's just, I, I, I think about these things when I'm playing these games also. So I figure. <laughs> oh no, no. Yeah. And it does seem like, uh, without the context, it's a basic ass name for a awesome spaceship. Yeah, I, I didn't even think about it being Alice's last name. It being called the the, the Landale, I, I just thought of it as being like, I don't know, Land, Landale also does sound kind of intrepid. It has that Chuck Yeager-ish like, energy to it. And I, I was like, okay, so it's just like an intrepid name for a spaceship. And I was probably hours and hours later when I went back to the statue and I was like, wait, hang on. Okay, I'm dumb. I don't think they actually remark on it being named after Alice. The characters don't like turn to camera and go, Hey, in case you're dumb, like Alex is like, <laughs> this is named after the protagonist of the first game. Okay. Continuing. Um, <laughs> no, it's just an Easter egg, at least for this, at, at this point in the game. So yeah, then now that they've got this badass spaceship, they embark to the artificial satellites. Yeah, uh, they're just like well, like we were doing before. Anyway, pick up where they left off before sabotage. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> Surprisingly, the satellite is a dungeon <laughs> where there are malfunctioning robots and monsters, but they reach the main control console and. This is what I think. This is a cool moment, I think. They encounter what seems to be something growing on the main console. Oh, man. Yeah, this is a good scene. And it's something It's very Giger-esque in a way. Rune recognizes it immediately as a manifestation of Dark Force. Yeah, well, Rune wouldn't he, given what, mm. what, what we know and what we have not yet revealed to the, your audience. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So he tries to uh, scare him off with a rocket, but that doesn't really work on them. They uh, engage him and defeat him for now. It seems like if you've played any of the other games, like this is a pretty scrub-ass appearance. Yeah, this is a mere lesser avatar of the Dark Force. It is not the real deal. Yeah, absolutely. And Rune, Rune, Rune's like pretty aware of that. He's reluctant yeah. to admit victory. Yeah, because uh, Chaz is he's like eager to high five everyone over this. He's like, yeah, we killed Dark Force, and Rune's no kid, no, no. Um, <laughs> you have no idea what you're in for. <laughs> and uh, but Chaz, now we start getting to the point where we start asking, wait a minute, who the hell is Rune actually? Yeah. Um, 
Chaz asks Rune how he knew it was Dark Force. Yeah. And Rune uh, replies that he's seen it before. Mm-hmm. Chaz asks mm-hmm. how he's seen it before. And uh, Rune says he's going to tell him some point in the future. <laughs> I'll, I'll explain it later. Yeah. <laughs> Classic, like, lost storytelling. It's, oh, yeah, we'll get around to that at some point. Kick the can down the road. And then Ren fixes Karan to fix the climate issues and whatnot. And uh, the group returns to uh, Zalan. So they get to Zalan and Ren confirms that everything's operational. But they discover that the storm on uh, Desolus still hasn't stopped. And then yeah. Hugh Raja once again yeah. stating that the cause is demons yeah. from Garabek ter- Tower. Yeah. God damn it. Yeah. His, 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 I don't know why you guys thought this, this. Can you imagine how frustrated he must have been during this whole like satellite excursion where... Where he's like, all right, I guess I'll help you guys, but this has nothing to do with me, and we should be going to this demon tower. I don't know why we're even here. Like, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's got uh, he's got a good reason to be a little annoyed, but, you know, take, he's, no, he, he's, he's, he's a pretty he's, well, good-natured guy, so. Yeah, I, I was going to say, he's totally chill with it. Like, he's a good guy. He's He's willing to, he's down for whatever, it seems like. He just thinks they're weird for not, believing him about this demon tower thing at all um, totally <sighs> rika agrees that she actually believes raja and says something else clearly causes the storm and needs to be figured out yeah chaz takes the lead on the mission back to desolus to figure out what's going on and uh, once they get down there they get the ice digger which is the latest vehicle to uh, kind of journey across the frozen expanses of Desolus. Mm-hmm. They come across a cave that's oddly warm inside, despite the unstoppable blizzard outside. And uh, once they traverse the cave, they come across, all right, fantasy Star One players. Yes. Um, get ready for your favorites. Two talking cats. They're, yes. Uh, they identify as musk cats, and uh, they seem to have some fond uh, feeling for Chaz. They tell uh, Chaz to go further inside to speak to the old man. The old man is a large musk cat, which is—I don't think it's actually explicitly say, stated, but it's meow from the yeah. first game. Yeah, it, it's definitely intended to be. That is—that seems to me to be a pretty clear reference thing. Um, boy, Meow was my lock screen on my iPhone for about three or four years. Meow yeah. rules. He's like the best party member from the first game. I love that mm-hmm. cat. Oh, so great. So great. Not only just because he's a cat, but he's he's a badass cat. Yeah. <laughs> he's great in battle, too. He, he um, helped save the, the solar system that one time. He's a pretty good cat. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's, he's very much a good boy. Yeah, so he tells Chaz that he feels like uh, it's not the first time they've met. And uh, he gives his treasure, the Silver Tusk, to Chaz and uh, begs him to make good use of it. Do you, do you think that this is an implication of a reincarnation thing? Or is, it, or is Meow just literally, you seem like a protagonist. Here, have a treasure. I think Meow's onto something. Huh. But... Hmm. There's nothing really there in the text. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I know that, that Japanese games, especially in older translated games, a lot of like Eastern religion and, and like reincarnation themes did not make the transition over. 
Yeah. So it, it it does make me wonder. I I haven't looked at any like Lost in Translation stuff for this game as much as I enjoy it. So I, I don't know if that could even be said to be implied here, or if, or if he's just yes, you remind me of a young adventurer I once knew. Here, yeah. have a silver tusk. Here I am. I am a uh, four thousand year old cat. But he does evolve into some kind of god cat at the end of Fantasy Star 1. So, yeah. You know, I believe it. It could be either or. I don't know. It's hard to say. But now that they've got the Silver Tusk, they decide to head to the Climate Control Center of Desolus. They're still banging on this whole, like, we got to fix it. We got to get in yeah. there. Yeah. You know, if this was like a 50s movie, it'd be like our party would be, or at least Chaz would be like the hard-headed guys. Damn it. <laughs> against yeah. all warnings and all advice. I'm going to stick with my mission. So. Yeah. It's not even the, the last weird, like alternate path that they come up with before they finally give up and just go to this tower. <laughs> Though, honestly, if I was dealing with Grizz, I'd be, I'd be a little little uh, dubious of anything that he said or not good if i was dealing with roger i'd be a little dubious of anything he said he does seem like he's trying to con them pretty much all the time i don't think he is but he has a shystery air to him mm-hmm. maybe not quite as much as alice was with han at the beginning but he definitely does seem like he he cons his way into the party originally by like guilt tripping them about making yep. his his temple and uh, and his like dumb jokes are do seem like almost like a sort of forced jocularity. So there's like a reason to be like, I don't know if this guy's on the level with us. I don't know if he's just messing with us or what, but yeah, totally. Slash. Is he just a dumb local that doesn't know what he's talking about? Exactly. exactly. <laughs> that seems like it could be just as likely. Just unfortunately they're ambushed by the mysterious <laughs> D Elm Lars. What a name. This is is classic 90s JRPG naming right here. Yeah, because because you can't see it spelled out, listeners. I want to emphasize that DLM Lars has two hyphens in it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, all right, sure. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's uh, it's something else. It's it's one hell of a name. So uh, DLM Lars tells them they were foolish to come here. And he says it was nothing more than a trap. They battle him. They kill him. But Chaz is worried because for some reason, D.L. Mars was talking like Dark Force was still alive. And, and another party member with Chaz is like, kid, I'm telling you. Because Rune before was like, that That was not the end of Dark Force. And I, I, th- I think we've explained pretty well that Chaz is basically like a wide-eyed Muppet who doesn't know, just doesn't know shit about shit. And so <laughs> it doesn't really surprise me that he's like, oh, he was talking like he's still alive and Rune has, has to be in the background somewhere going, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, I think you called it, called it perfect. He's, he is the ultimate basic dude of this whole game. Yeah. So uh, that's why it's so baffling that the game is like about him. It has. Uh, I, I know that Vaughn and from Final Fantasy twelve was like a late edition, but he does have like Vaughnish energy to him. He totally um, has Vaughn energy. That's a yeah. good call. Yeah. yeah, and he's roughly as I wouldn't say unlikable, but just there. boring. Yeah, yep. like 
he's he's not unlikable because there's nothing there's not enough there for you to determine if you like him or not. Yeah, exactly. Continuing the travels, they uh, come to the town of Meese. They're informed that a strange illness is going around. They enter the inn and meet the Esper in charge. And they're told that the illness started shortly after the tower appeared. So, finally, Raja's uh, claims are finally confirmed. But, <laughs> in a very timely manner, he passes out. Respect. <laughs> <laughs> he is the Rodney Dangerfield of this game. <laughs> um, Chaz thinks Chaz thinks he's joking at first, but uh, he, he's running a fever. He's getting pretty. He's actually sick. After Raja, after they get Raja to bed, Chaz is still in disbelief. But uh, Rune asks Rika if she feels "quote unquote" it too. Yeah, both of them agree, and she states that. Oh, and Rune states that he sensed it ever since they got to Desolus, but it's especially strong in Meese. And mm-hmm. Chaz is, "What is it?" <laughs> Um, a good question. And so Rune explains that it's the black energy wave that they're sensing, and it's most likely coming from Gowerberg Tower. And uh, suddenly then an Esper rushes into the room, exclaiming that Kyra Tyranny, a uh, headstrong and reckless Esper, has gone to the Gowerberg Tower alone. The the Esper, the team, wants to take off after them, but the Esper says that the tower is surrounded by carnivorous trees. I, yeah, uh, a, a good description. And th- there's some, some really good like art and animation in this game. But the, this was definitely something that I think my imagination when I played the game imbued with a lot more horror than you ever actually see. Carnivorous trees really creeped me out in a real cool way. As a side note, losing Raja is one of the few times where I was like, no, please stay. Because <laughs> have, Raja is the best like guest party member of the bunch IMO because he's an off healer. So it means that Rika can use her DPS abilities pretty consistently while he's around. And you don't have to do that like weird plate spinning game you have to do normally where it's like, Rika does like super crazy damage, especially once you get that silver tusk. But she's also usually the only person with like really good or reliable group healing magic in your group. So mm-hmm. you're constantly like, at least I was constantly like rolling the dice on, okay, do I do double slash or do I play it safe and actually heal people? And uh, Raja made that so much easier to decide. And I was very sad to see him get sick and leave the party. Yeah. Yeah. Fortunately, he's going to be all right. He gets better. Yeah. But uh, definitely uh, losing him from your party is like mechanically, it's a bummer. I was like, Um, no, white mage, please stay. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, from here, the group quickly heads to the northeast to Garabuk Tower in order to try to save uh, Kyra. And upon arriving at the carnivorous forest, a place you never want to be, Chaz quickly realizes that the ice digger is useless. Like they they can't just ice digger their way through this carnivorous forest. The ice digger does not work 
on digging through carnivorous carnivorous trees. That's uh, horrifying. I don't uh, like. It really makes you wonder what these are made out of. Uh, <laughs> do they regenerate back? Is that the thing, or are, are they made of something too hard for the ice digger to dig through? Both of those are pretty bad signs, guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, have to say, but well, they do uh, regenerate. That's uh, true. Yeah, that's true. So that must be the thing. But uh, yeah, so Rika spots Kyra being attacked by attacked by the trees, and th- this is like the only like battle sequence that you in- enter where you have to flee or die. That I'm pretty sure there's dialogue in the actual battle sequence. It's like we can't win; we have to get out of here, and you have to use the run command, which I thought was kind of neat. It was like uh, storytelling using the battle system in a way that you definitely saw out of like Squaresoft RPGs, but it's definitely not a super common thing to try to tell story through the battle rather than it being like an AB thing of we tell the story and then we do a fight and then we tell the story and then we do a fight. That was much more common at the time. So I was like, Oh, that's refreshing. It's nice to see yeah. that stuff. Yeah, it is cool. It is cool that actually make that mechanically. Mm-hmm relevant integrate the story into uh the more mechanically heavy parts of the game i like that but uh, yeah so they're like we got to get past this forest because we got to deal with this demon tower now that we know that it's legit and kyra says that the esper leader lutz should know a a way she tells the group about how lutz and alice saved the algo system from dark force which is something that all too well if you played through Fantasy Star 1. Lutz was like the Gandalf of their group. He was like Mm -hmm. a black mage, basically. And Chaz can't believe that someone could still be alive from 2,000 years ago, even though he's recently met a 4,000-year-old cat, but he doesn't know that. Yeah, Kyra explains that he still lives in the deepest steps of the Esper Mansion, but no one is allowed to see him except for high-ranking espers. And uh, this had good mystery around it. I was immediately like, I want to meet this guy. I, I want to see what's up with this. For one thing, it sounds like bullshit, and I want to know what's actually going on. But uh, as a firm believer, Kyra idolizes Lutz, and the group resolves they must help the people of Mies before they all succumb to illness. And you wander through the snowdrifts to get to the Esper Mansion, which I feel like is, I don't know if this actually bears out, but it felt like it was a lot further between the nearest town and Esper Mansion than it was between any of the other towns that I went to. It it felt like a really long trek through the snow to get to this place. I feel like you're right. I feel like this game is really well paced. There's not a whole lot of just walking through the field and when there are like long distances to go, they give you a vehicle to do it with. Yeah. Uh, this time you don't have that vehicle, but right. Yeah. This does feel longer than most of the other cases. Yeah. But at, at any rate, after a lot of trudging through the snow and getting jumped by Arctic monsters, they do finally arrive at the Esper mansion and the group is greeted by guards and they get let inside. D- does does Rune flash some credentials to get them in? I can't remember when they find out that Rune is like tight with the Aspers. I think they just recognize him. Oh, okay, yeah, they're just like, hey, what's up? And everyone's like, what? Okay, that's weird. Yeah, 
But inside the mansion, there are statues of a gentle-looking, beautiful woman. Were those... Man, I don't remember those statues. Was that another Alice reference, or is that... Yeah. But after talking with several of the denizens of the mansion, it becomes clear that Lutz is revered like a god by the Aspers. All, All of them also feel the black wave energy there's a big like disturbance in the force sort of thing going on during this section of the game mm-hmm. um, comes up a lot with kyra as well but uh, yeah so the group makes their way to this inner sanctum this is a, this this section feels like a social dungeon as it were like there's a lot of walking to different rooms and talking to people trying to get access to the central area and maybe it was just because it was late and I was like really impatient to be like, show me the Lutz. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, it does uh, feel it feels too long. It's one of it's. Uh, have you played any of the Lethalcom Trails games? I've picked up and dropped multiple Trails games. They don't work for me for some reason. But is I that like a them, thing? I like them a lot, but I feel like they they do this a lot where it's yeah. like you get into a town. And you walk in, you like have to talk to every NPC and then you like find some mansion and have to just walk around the mansion talking to every NPC in the damn mansion before you can progress. Yeah. As a very quick aside, I started developing my own JRPG at one point. And one of the things that I did for it was that I, I added some like, point and click adventure game flavor to it where Mm -hmm. anytime you clicked on some obvious bit of world stuff or whatever, like if there was like some graves or whatever, and you went up and you pushed use on it, the character would like muse about the graves out loud. And he was with a, a, a companion who didn't necessarily like him personally. And the companion would hear him using out loud and then make some snide comment back. And then they would like bicker for a second. Mm-hmm. And, and so it, it had like big, like point and click adventure energy. And uh, I, th- I think taking it in more that direction would make it more entertaining for the player rather than literally just walking from one room to another, talking to yet another Esper who doesn't like, <laughs> doesn't seem to like, Seems like he should just be literally showing you directly to Lutz, given how like deferential they are all to Rune. But instead, instead you get this weird little runaround. But at any rate, like we're saying, Rune steps forward and insists that they be allowed to enter. And it, it's like Rune literally appears out of Chaz's shadow or something. Like mm-hmm. that the, the, the NPCs just literally did not realize he was here at all until that moment. Because they're just like shocked by this request from Rune and apologizes to him. And all the characters are like, that's weird. And I'm sitting there with my Switch looking down, agreeing with them, going, yeah, this is weird. I don't know what's going on with Rune right now. But uh, We'll find out soon enough. Very soon. So inside the Inner Sanctum, they meet with an old Asper who is acquainted with Rune and seems to be like a a friend of his or something. Or or a student, actually. like again, there's like this like kowtowing that's that's going on to Rune that seems really weird. 
given mm-hmm. that as far as you knew, he was just some like vagabond wizard you met in a burned out village. Like he's he up until this point, he's never appeared to be anything other than just an adventurer who enjoys ribbing the main characters. But uh, Rune says he's going down the stairs of the inner sanctum to Lutz's room, and Kyrie gets excited to finally meet Lutz. And on a table in the room is this like floating ball, and Kyra asks Lutz to show himself, and Rune reveals that Lutz isn't there, and that actually he died a long time ago. Kyra is like severely let down and her faith is nearly shattered by this. It it does seem at first to be like a man behind the curtain thing that they're just like weekend at Bernie's this whole (laughs) religion for a second. But Rune explains to them that even though Lutz's body is gone, his spirit lives on and that he put his spirit into this ball that's on the table, this telepathy ball. He explains that if the right person appears to the ball, that Lutz's spirit will be transferred into that person. And I understood it to be like memories, like he was downloading his personality into a computer practically. And, and yeah. I think that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. And they use really mystical language around it, but it basically sounds like he, he downloaded his brain. And then rune just like coolly points to his head and is hey guess what guys check it out and (laughs) and everyone's just no way i'm the lutz you've been looking for all along (laughs) and they didn't ask the question that i wanted to ask where i was i wanted them to be like why did you play so coy throughout this whole thing was this just were you just enjoying like effing with us? Why didn't you explain this to us sooner? This is really weird. But uh, yeah, the old Esper confirms that Rune is the fifth generation Lutz, which is like shocking to Kyra. Uh, I did at, at first when this revelation happened, and because they're not like super clear about what's going on, I was like, okay, is Lutz. Is this like a clone Palpatine situation? Is he like, like, <laughs> is Rune like a young, sexy Lutz clone that has downloaded Lutz's brain, or was Lutz a person, or, or was Rune a person before he downloaded Lutz's brain, and he's just Rune Lutz, or I don't know. I, I don't think we, they're very like whatever. Don't worry about it. Rune is Lutz, so. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's not. They don't get. They don't get too in, too into the mechanics of it. Yeah, whereas that, they're like Rune is Lutz, and and all the characters are like cool. And I playing the game, I'm just having an existential crisis. I mean, how does this work? But the characters don't care, so we just move on. Rune explains to Chaz that there's a cycle in the Algo star system where every thousand years. You know, there's another appearance of Dark Force, and you have to sell another Sega game. Uh, and every thousand years, a hero appears to defeat Dark Force and bring peace to the to Algo and restore the balance. And Rika says that the group defeated Dark Force on Kirin, but there's or Kiran, I don't know. There, but there's no way to stop the catastrophes in Algo. Rune explains that due to the destruction of Parma a thousand years ago, the balance of the Algo system has been weakened. I guess, like, the idea is that, like, every planet is part of the bulwark that keeps Dark Force at bay or something. And so, like, less planets means less shields. I don't know. Something like that. 
Yeah, but, yeah, I think that's the basic idea. So you think Dark Force would have come back sooner than a thousand years rather than showing up right on time, but maybe he's just chilling. I don't know. Maybe he's, he's got a. Or maybe on. he's more powerful than ever. <laughs> uh, Rune isn't sure if Dark Force is still alive, but knows that the Black Wave energy can still be felt. Again, I don't think he should be coy about this. He should be like, he's. Yeah, it, we got Black Wave, we still got Dark Force. That's how this works, kids. But he asserts that the evil is not gone and still needs to be defeated. Arun tells Chaz that he has chosen him to be the hero to defeat Dark Force, which... For no particular reason. Yeah, he just decides. It, it's not like in like the Dragon Quest games where it, all the characters are basically like very loosely descended from Loto slash Roto. Like the chosen, it's just Rune is, I dubbed the chosen one and that's it. And like, is he, but he's not really a chosen one. He's just a dude who was there. He was there. It's just a guy who he's a dumb guy that can swing a sword. Good. That's Chaz. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently that qualifies you for chosen one material in this solar system. But anyway, I will stop being mean to Chaz and continue the the tale. Um, <laughs> Chaz is obviously shocked by this and doesn't know why Rune would choose him. Rune feels that Chaz is a man of potential, but is untested. And uh, he concludes that they need to go to Garabic Tower to find the answers they need to this situation. The old Esper says that the tower is surrounded by carnivorous trees, and at least one of their party members is like, yeah, I know. <laughs> um, <laughs> met him firsthand. Thanks. Wasn't fun. But the old Esper does tell them that the Eclipse Torch is capable of destroying the forest, which sounds like an ecological disaster, but hey, you got to do what you got to do to save the solar system. The, the group will need to go to Gumbius Temple to retrieve the torch. And... It being, yeah. The, I'd say this is a, this is the point in the game where it gets a little bit like, I, w- I wouldn't call them fetch quests, but you're just going. Your motivations get a lot sketchier in this part, yeah. Uh, where it, especially during the early game, it's super clear why you need to go places and why you need to do things. And it starts to become like wise old men just telling you, you must go and get the eclipse torch. And you're like, okay. I mean, it, cause and effect is pretty clear. Cannot get into temple. Must get thing to get into temple. But even I don't know. It 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 does. the The final quest before facing the final boss is a bust that but thou must. Where where like <laughs> they don't bother to explain it at all. They're just like fight these bosses because we say so. So it like slowly ramps down on that. So I wouldn't be surprised to find out that they designed this game like basically from the beginning to the end rather than, I, I think that is a, a much more modern game design trick where, where they're always like design the first level last or whatever. And right. I don't know that game designers in the eight and 16 bit era were doing that stuff. No, probably not. And from what I read about the development, it was definitely, it sounded chaotic. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And, and even if it wasn't, this game is so huge. It's so big. And so no matter how much you love your job, at some point you'd be like, man, this is really getting to be a death march, guys. Can we wrap it up? 
But uh, yeah, so anyway, they need to go to Gumbius Temple, not to be confused with Garibut Tower. And Kyra is disappointed that Rune is Lutz, saying that he's insensitive and nothing like the reverent person that she's idolized from like stories or whatever. And Rune that says that he and Lutz, for that matter, have always been like that, which... I kind of like that. <laughs> I was just kind of like, hey. Yeah. This is me. Like, uh, you're, you're the one who decided to idolize me. Yeah. Without yeah. knowing who I am. Yeah. Don't meet your heroes, kids. We are about to get another blast from the past in the form of a old fantasy star character coming back. So the group heads to Gumbius Temple, where they beg the Hour Guard to allow them to borrow the Eclipse Torch, which seems suspect to me. Like, why would they, why would this guy let them borrow this powerful thing? He disagrees, he won't let him borrow it, and he says the Holy Flame cannot go beyond the Temple Gates. Even though the request is coming from Lutz, and they explain that the entire Algo system is in danger, he still won't lend him the torch. Three mysterious brothers in robes, and here's another hyphenated uh, <laughs> name, the Ziaduls from the Air Castle teleport and steal the Eclipse Torch. The Eclipse Torch. They taunt Rune saying he'll know where who he'll know they taunt Rune saying he'll know who to expect there. And if you've yeah. played Fantasy Star One, you know what the air castle is and you know who you're gonna find there. Yeah, that there's definitely a groan and like a uh, god damn it. <laughs> yeah, because the air castle is prop maybe the worst dungeon in the Fantasy Star One. <laughs> it's so brutal. Oh my god, that was that's another podcast that you already did, but yeah, that's a brutal dungeon. <laughs> I don't think it's quite as bad in this one. It's still probably the worst dungeon in this game, but it's not nearly as awful as it was in Fantasy Star 1. Yeah, once they take off with the Eclipse Torch, Rune tells the Honor Guard that they'll retrieve the torch, but only if they can use it to kill the Carnivorous Forests. Rika asks Rune about the air castle, and Rune tells him that it floated over Parma a long time ago. Chazan asks who the uh, Ziathul, Ziathuls were asking about. 
Rune tells him that they were possibly talking about a certain king named Don Lashik. Lashik, yeah, he's back. Yeah. He was killed by Lutz and Alice in the original game. So Rune's unsure, even though we've already seen a cat that is functionally immortal and a uh, (laughs) wizard that's functionally immortal. Um, And and a full-blown demon tower and a carnivorous... Just accept whatever is coming your way, guys. Just... just, it, it's all possible. It's all real, as the great Han Solo once said. Uh-huh. <laughs> exactly. <sighs> you know, he, he says he doesn't know who's waiting for the group at the air castle. Yeah. And it may not even exist in the asteroid belt where Parma used to be. So the group heads to the airport and looks for the air castle in the asteroid belt. Once they land there, they Just make like a their really way. Really cool cutscene too of them oh, like right. flying through that asteroid belt, and you like see the air castle in amongst the debris and everything. It's really cool. Mm-hmm. It's super cool. Just the very concept. the The quality of the dungeon aside, the very concept of a flying castle, and now one that is like adrift w- within an asteroid belt. It's pretty yeah. fucking badass. It's really metal, and the fact that it, it's the final dungeon of the first game is just like a cherry on top uh, of that for Fantasy Star fans. Like, like spoilers for Dark Souls 3, but this is like that moment in Dark Souls 3 when you get the title card for Anna Londo. Yeah, know? very much, very much. It's, it's like that, where you're like, oh, dang! Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this is probably I don't know. We've had lots. We've had all this, all this other stuff, but uh, this is the first. This is the location that you oh, were yeah. in the, the original game. Yeah, it's like, certainly the it. biggest, the biggest reference to Fantasy Star One. Yeah. yeah. So once they land there, they make their way through the castle. They just. Basically, fighting trash mobs in the dungeons. Yeah, so, there's a lot of yada here, but let me assure the listeners that I spent like what felt like ten hours in this castle. Oh yeah, <laughs> it, it, it was like the death march of all death marches through through because it is paced like an eight bit dungeon. Unlike all the rest of them that are like practically a 32-bit dungeon, this one is like the throwback dungeon. So it is just as long and plodding and full of walking three steps and getting jumped by more monsters and like all that stuff. Is there a teleport trap section to this dungeon? No, but that's the only thing that's missing is teleport traps. That would be like... We're doing the full 8-bit dungeon experience, warts and all. Yeah, there is definitely <laughs> a, a little bit of uh, compression in um, the notes that I made here. But uh, that's also because doing a uh, Shimigami Tensei podcast uh, <laughs> taught me that uh, talking too much about each dungeon is just uh, real. It's, yeah. it's probably more of a slog than playing yeah. it. So. Yeah, I, d- I don't I don't mention it in any of the other dungeons, but holy crap, this dungeon oh, it's is rough. so rough. It's rough, yeah. And there's no save points. It's so long, too. And so if you want to like actually reach the boss at the end, you have to walk from the beginning of the air castle to the bottom of the dungeon before you get to fight the boss. Mm-hmm. So 
you better not be using any of those Vancean skills at all on your way down there, even though they're super powerful like boss monsters it, as random enemies in this dungeon, because you're going to need them all. You're going to need all those skills. Oh yeah, it's a real it's a real throwback. <laughs> <laughs> but once they actually do get through the dungeon, they make their way to the Zeathuls. Uh, Zia yeah, Zeathuls like don't really give a shit about any of the team, but Lutz, who they're determined to kill. Yeah, they this, this attack. Is revenge for two thousand years ago. They attack. Your team takes them out, and you just keep on delving deeper into the castle until you find the Eclipse Torch. Or at least a, a decoy, which turns into uh, a specter. Yep. So after that lovely fake out, they're wondering where the real eclipse torch is, and guess who appears? But Lashik, Lashik, yeah, who's in a zombie-like form, and he threatens to turn them all into tortured souls like himself. Yeah, and he's a real bastard. He's, he was a real it's, bastard in the real game, in the original game, and he's a real bastard here. And, and he never has stopped since. That's right. Yeah, Lashik probably kill or or Lashik. I, I don't know. He this boss probably killed me more than any other boss in the game, including Dark Force. I think probably mm-hmm. super hard, especially for where you're at in the game. I think I was I I had to sadly retreat with my tail between my legs and go grind for several hours, which is part of me complaining about being in this dungeon for ten hours. I'm sure is like that's added to that time. It's also frustrating because this is an incredibly well balanced game for its era yeah. in general. Like yeah. you don't have to do a lot of grinding. No, no. Part. Yeah, for for most of this game, you're pretty much right at the level you need to be once you get through a dungeon and end up in a new area. You're, like, right on level. It's very well-tuned. But I think because this is the the retro dungeon, uh, it goes a little bit funny Mm -hmm. uh, and not in your favor because Nintendo hard, like, 8-bit level hard is in play suddenly, and it's like... uh, Time to sack up, kids. We're we're doing it for real. We're doing it like the old kids did it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank God for save states in this day yeah. and age. Sure. Yeah. I, I like I said, I played it on a Switch, so I, I don't think I had save states. Uh, Does the Genesis Collection not have a like save not, state system? Not that I'm aware of. Not on the Switch, at least. This game really needs a Sega Ages version made of it. <laughs> it would be so great if it got Sega Ages. That would be really great. Because the uh, Sega Ages version of the original Fantasy Star is phenomenal. So good. Yeah. Man, I love that thing. I love it so much. Yeah. So yeah, the group, they barely defeat him. She, yeah. for some reason, I'm pronouncing him as the like the 80s uh, pop group. But she says that they uh, may like have won. Odd villain? But they're never going to get the Eclipse Torch. Yeah. He tries to dispose of it, but uh, Rika is able to snatch it at the last second. As the group celebrates her victory, Lashika then starts to dissolve into nothingness. But he says that even now he won't die. He works for quote-unquote him, so as long as he exists, Lashik shall forever continue to bring calamity to the future of Algo. And we know who he is. Uh, so. I just- I just wish Chaz did. 
Yeah, Chaz is never going to figure it out. You half expect the the like happily ever after sequence to be Chaz turning to Rika at the end and just being like, "What just happened?" <laughs> <laughs> oh Chaz you're so pretty (laughs) (laughs) yeah pretty much yeah now the air castle is starting to uh, collapse everybody's got to run for their lives and get to the Landale right before the air castle explodes Um, now my memory is it is pretty cool my memory is didn't it collapse in the original game yes I believe it did so Somehow it, it, it got reconstituted. It's a, it's a Castlevania thing, I'm pretty yeah. sure. So afterwards, once once they're safely in the Landale, Rune states that Lashik is pretty pathetic when you think about it. He was uh, seduced by a power long ago, but he's just a pawn of that evil. Because in Fantasy Star 1, yeah. he is this very powerful figure. And oh yeah, yeah. He's what starts Alice's whole journey by murking her brother. His stormtroopers do it, but it was on his <laughs> orders. Um, they are they are, li- they are literally stormtroopers. Yeah, they yeah. <laughs> yeah, they look exactly like them. Yeah, to the point where I was like, "Man, copyright sure was murkier back in the day." Chaz, <laughs> <It sure was>. <laughs> <laughs> of course, has to ask who he was that Lashik was talking about. Rika suspects because the. Um, two-year-old is yeah, a little bit ahead of Chaz. Yeah. yeah. It was dark force that he was talking about. Yeah. So do you want to tell us about the fabled Garo Burke tower? Yeah. Rush's Rush's fabled Garabrick tower. So the group returns to Gumbius with the torch and the honor guard is like, Oh, thanks so much for saving our, our holy relic. Now go use it to murder some trees if you wish. And so the group heads to the forest of carnivorous trees and Chaz destroys the whole forest. And with no obstacle in the way to the tower, the group heads in. Um, It's pretty satisfying taking them out. Like there's not much to it, but it's like, they're just such, uh, it's man, you've been pissing me off for the last time. It it is, it is pretty satisfying to get this out of the way. It's like moving that Snorlax in Pokemon. Yeah. Get that Snorlax out of the road. You're like, (laughs) finally. Exactly. So once they're inside, and I'll say just real quick that this dungeon I was a little nervous about after Air Castle. And then I was like, oh, this is a normal dungeon. Never mind. This is fine. (laughs) But the group finds that the tower is very much like a living creature. Like the whole, like it's a demon tower in the sense that it's a tower. That is also a demon. <laughs> yeah, you're very, very Gigeresque. You know, kinda. yeah, uh, veins like greenish fluid, eyeballs all over the place to activate like these weird, like elevator-like things, and uh, a very fleshy interior. You imagine that them walking on the floor makes like a wet hamburger noise, possibly. Oh, gross. gross. Yeah, yeah. you're totally right, but yeah. so the group explore the tower with mild interest and more than a little bit of disgust as befits this location and along the way they encounter obviously more hostile creatures because what's a jrpg without some random encounters right but eventually they make it to the heart of the tower and chaz rika rune kyra and ren 
find a weird arachnid creature that's like a huge scorpion thing, and it has a familiar face. Asks if it's Dark Force, and Rune confirms that it is. Yeah, uh, this is this is very similar to the Dark Force that we've seen in the previous Fantasy Star games. Yes. Okay. Yeah. For sure. And uh, yeah, Dark Force, like the Red King, has spidery forms that he takes. Or the Crimson King, rather, excuse me. Trying to reference the Dark Tower stuff. Literally in a Dark Tower right now. But uh, Ren says that the Dark Force in Garabic Tower doesn't compare to any creature they encountered on Curran, leading Arika to infer that there are two Dark Forces... Rune dismisses this, saying that the evil incarnate must have transported to the tower after he was defeated on Curran and assumed this new form. Which, they're both, but we'll get to that. Dark Force... Something interesting is going to happen with that whole 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 bit there. Dark Force senses the presence of of Chaz and company, then he tries to scare them off again with a lightning shower, but the group attacks back, and after a long, tiring battle, Dark Force disappears. This is the second Dark Force you defeat, and it disperses the tower entirely. Yeah, and the second the tower is gone, the group realizes that the job is finally done, and they can now rest easy with the knowledge that they are able to keep the climate under control and were able to stop Dark Force. That's another reason to play Fantasy Star 4 in 2020 is that if you do, you will get to defeat climate change. <laughs> Maybe you will. We'll see. Or do you? But uh, The brief satisfaction of feeling like climate change is something that's defeatable. <laughs> yeah. That's it. We solved it with swords. And... Yeah. Fire magic. It's all good. That's how it works. Kyra says that she still has some work to do back at Mies, and she says her farewells. She doesn't get a cool illness like Raja. She just pieces out. And she says that that Chaz is so endearing, like a baby brother. Sure. (laughs) All right. Yeah. I I almost wonder if this is like a a backhanded compliment. Is this... (laughs) I don't know. I, I, obviously, I read like the most uncharitable read of anyone's interactions with Chaz because I'm clearly a hater. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but it, it almost does seem like a very backhanded way to tell someone that they're stupid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but Ka- Kyra also tells Rune that he wasn't exactly what she expected the Reverend Lutz to be but he certainly didn't bring shame to his name. So it seems like she's come to a nice middle ground on that situation. Once she departs... Oh, and and real quick before I I continue on with that, this is like a a very good example of the like short character arcs that you see, like these chapters that are built around the, the guest party member with Kyra in particular, where when you first meet her, she's like very naive about the Lutz situation. And then she has like a, almost like a refusing the call moment when she finds out who Lutz really is. And then here at the end of that arc, we see her accepting it and saying essentially goodbye to the party, even though you can recruit her for the end game stuff if you so choose. But her character arc is resolved at this point. And that's what we see throughout the game. 
Yeah, yeah. It's good. It's good. These like little like vignettes. Yeah, like that. But uh, you know, once once uh, Kyra departs, Chaz asks Rune if he's really that undependable since Kyra mentioned him to be like a baby brother and Rune replies that Chaz has matured a lot on their long journey, but he's still pretty much like him. Like him as in like Chaz. Is that what that means? That is he saying Chaz going to Chaz? Is that what that is indicating there? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. Like, uh, you're still, you're, you've grown up a lot. This is pretty markedly important moment because outside of Rune saying, I want you to be the chosen one. This is basically the first nice thing that Rune has said to Chaz where he's, yeah, you've grown up a lot. Like he actually gives him a little bit for once, whereas normally he just like flips Chaz shit throughout the game. Yeah. And, but they obviously have a go at each other immediately afterwards because that's their dynamic and indicating that the two friends are still pretty much rivals. And Rika just sighs and says, you two just don't quit, do you? Wow. <laughs> Some things never change. Yeah. It's very, I don't know. <laughs> Just, <sighs> so cheesy. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. There are a lot of ways in, in which the, this game feels very ahead of its time, but the dialogue is maybe not one of them. Yeah. There are definitely moments where it's okay. I get it. I don't know. Sitcom quality <laughs> type shit like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, now we are pretty much heading into the end game. Um, So since they just destroyed uh, this version of Dark Forest, they see the stormy skies of Desolus clear up immediately. Glad that they've helped resolve all this. Kyra bids farewell, but then they see fire erupt into the sky from a nearby temple. Probably bad. Yeah. Investigating, they find that the entire temple's gone, and the bishop that's there, that's still there, explains that uh, while Dark Force has been beaten, the profound darkness still exists. <laughs> now, the profound darkness is, to my knowledge, new to the Fantasy Star lore at yeah, this point. It's super Dark Force. Yeah, it is basically the like metaphysical force that... Dark Force that has produced Dark Force. I don't know. All the Dark Force. All yeah. Many Dark Forces, one <laughs> might say. It's, uh, it's the true root of all evil, and Dark Force is just a manifestation. Basically, the Dark Force on Desilus, so the reason shit's still going down is that the Dark Force on Desilus came to find out that there is a mysterious fourth planet called Rykros which is said to house ancient secrets. Now, this is a new to Fantasy Star 4 as well. We had no idea there was a fourth planet. Um, I was I was so excited about this, and then you go there, and I'm like, oh, all right. Yeah. <laughs> still a very cool idea. Cool idea. Wish there had been um, more to it. We'll get to it. Yeah, so... They need an arrow prism to get there. And uh, uh, Rune recalls that uh, Let's had an arrow prism stoned, stowed in a temple on Mo- Motavia. And uh, with the help of Demi, they secure a water vessel that gets them there. Once they, along the way, they discover Daughter, which is an abandoned prototype administrative AI like Seed. 
that has sent androids to disrupt all other systems not under her control, including Ren when his communications were uh, blacked out. This was because uh, Daughter was operating under the misunderstanding that uh, she was establishing peace and uh, basically following her protocols. And uh, so she is still deluded and uh, again attacks Ren and the group is uh, forced to shut her down completely. Was that a, was that an optional dungeon? Because I don't remember that part. The the whole daughter thing is that optional? Because I, I don't think remember. that I don't think that is optional. Man, I must be losing it. I, mm-hmm. I don't remember. I don't even remember doing that dungeon, guys. You can see there are many dungeons, so I can be forgiven. <laughs> there are. So they arrive at an island temple where the arrow prism is, and meet a man outside who intru- introduces himself as Seth. An archaeologist. And uh, while Chaz allows him in the group, Rune senses something is off for good fucking reason. Yeah. And uh, Seth is uh, really trying to suck up to Chaz, who uh, enjoys the attention. Which Um, works because Chaz is an idiot. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) So they they claim the prism and it reveals the way to uh, Rykros. And uh, at this point, Seth suddenly transforms into another manifestation uh, of Dark Force, revealing that it can disguise Uh, itself as a human as well. I I will say, I did obviously suspect that Seth was a traitor. That They practically painted on his forehead that he's a traitor. I did not expect him to actually be Dark Force. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh-huh. It's like, this guy is shady, but... Also, yeah, there's it's... another one of those manga cutscenes of them using the the Aereo, using the Aereo prism that is also, like, really rad. Just, like, I, I know it's basically just a big blue, blue beam shooting up into the sky, which is, like, the thing that comic book movies have been doing for, like, the last 30 years, it feels like now, but... I don't know, it was cool at the time, in Sega Genesis days. I was like, wow, that's really cool looking. Mm-hmm, definitely. So uh, Dark Force has taken off over there. Basically, our team's got to hurry to Rykros before the supporters of Darkner, of the Darkness get there first. So they land on the fourth planet, and they're hailed telepathically by a person named LaRouf that explains that the fourth planet has an invisible barrier, and uh, with its highly elliptical orbit, it only swings close to the other planets of the Algo system once every thousand years. Yeah. So now you're getting some real insight into why Dark Force has power, or Dark Force would raise hell every thousand years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, this is very cool. The idea that is connected to the orbit of the planets is feels very fantasy star in a very cool way to me. And it feels like a very cool, like, very cool reveal of, of you know, something that if you've been playing the games successively, like wondering like how's this guy just keep on coming back that's just there is an actual explanation to it for it and i appreciate they that they provide it it's a retconned explanation but a good retcon will give them the no prize exactly exactly even though he he considers them to be protectors he demands that they meet the guardians of the tower of strength and tower of courage before he will uh, reveal the answer to their questions these are some serious challenges too. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. 
Yes, they're a nightmare. But you take them down, and uh, they both give you rings of power. So you go back to the little roof, and uh, he is ready to reveal the secret of Algo's creation. So here is your lore dump for all of the Fantasy Star series. Yeah. Basically... Billions of years ago, a spiritual being split into two halves that fought amongst themselves. Eventually, there was a winner, the Great Light, who banished the loser, the profound darkness, to another dimension in fear that it could somehow have a resurgence. So, to avoid that, it created a seal, which was the Algo Algo solar system itself, and it put protectors on each planet. And so every thousand years, the seal would weaken drastically. And so the great light created Rykros, which was like a planet that would serve as a warning system that would come around every thousand years, as well as the roof. And it would operate like a clock and it would awaken the protectors of their mission. Mm. But because everything in the star system has gotten so fucked up and thing, planets have been destroyed. They blew up a whole planet. Yeah, exactly. The seal has basically been weakened and the darkness has been able to come to Algo in physical form as Dark Force. And, oh, I got ahead of myself there. But yeah, so like a clock, its arrivals basically manifest protectors to take down Dark Force. And each time a hero expelled Dark Force, bringing peace for another millennium. But since Parma was destroyed last millennium, part of the seal was was destroyed. And now the profound darkness has a chance to completely break free. And so Chaz and the group are the chosen protectors who have to stop the darkness before it destroys the entire system. And to do that, they got to cross over into its own its uh, dark dimension and defeat it there. So we we could say that Chaz and his friends are warriors of light, possibly, but that's tra- <laughs> trademarked. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. If you really had to, <laughs> <laughs> so they they got the rings of power, which will are the only things that could help them survive against the power of darkness. That's what basically makes them the chosen protectors. Yeah. Now, this is a point where we get a little character development for Chaz, and it sucks. Yeah. Because he gets angry about the burden being placed upon them all. And he, to his credit, he like just says, this is all over my head. I don't really get, get it, but I want to live on my own terms. Mm-hmm. And he makes some arguments saying that Blant being you know blind champions of the light makes them no different than the likes of Zeo. But you know, seems it's like, pretty different to me. <laughs> pretty fucking different. And he's just been told that there is this universe, or at least like constellation, destroying darkness. And he is just the latest in a series of heroes that have taken it down every thousand years. And this is, you know, shit is about to go down for real this time. It's- it's too late for for refusing the call, man. You've had plenty of opportunities for that, and you've never shown any sort of hesitancy before. This is not the time. Yeah, it feels yeah, definitely like they wanted to get that like refusing the call moment in it, but not it, now. Yeah, Come it just comes. It comes too late. If they did this info dump earlier in the adventure, it would feel less hinky, probably. 
if it happens sometimes shortly after Alice's death, you could definitely be more sympathetic about it. Where he's just, man, I was somebody's sidekick a few hours ago, and now she's dead, and now you're telling me I'm the chosen one? Like, fuck off. But, like, at this point, it feels like he should be like, okay, yeah, this makes sense. Let's let's do it. Yeah, but he doesn't. So Rune decides that he's got to take Chaz back to the Esper mansion and kind of, you know, break it down for him. So there he shows him the sacred blade Alcedian which is able to, which is said to be able to defeat the profound darkness. Mm-hmm. As Chaz approaches the sword alone, he hears the voice of the legendary hero, Alice, who says the spirits of the past heroes who fought the, the darkness now reside in the sword. This feels like a very Star, War, Star Wars moment here. Chaz claims the sword and basically he's flooded with the memories of the past battles of the heroes and their battles against the darkness. Yeah, very cool cutscene. Scenes from every previous Fantasy Star game. He gets the full info dump of everything that we've played through ever, if you've played through the whole series up to this point. Mm-hmm. And you get to see Alice again. And yeah. she is, get your shit together, dude. Yeah. Even yourself. He gets memories of the protagonist of fantasy star star two as well. And like key moments of like moments of sympathy between something that happened to that protagonist and something that happened to him, Mm -hmm. which I I was like, Oh, that's interesting. And there are memories of fantasy star three as well, but I don't know what they mean because I, I noped out of that game pretty early. So (laughs) there, you know, fantasy star three, Reiko Kodama described it as like a collection of side stories, I think is like a retcon. It's like, (laughs) Nice. Towing the company Good line. save. <laughs> yeah, to, and that's what they, what best way to think about it. Alice tells Chaz, believe himself. He's got the spirit of all those heroes going with him. So now he, uh, he is ready to join his allies and take on the profound darkness. Yeah. Just as he basically gets the shit, Figured out, Ren gets transmission that disasters are erupting around Motavia. And uh, they move out. They're pretty much met up by uh, all their old allies who are ready to finish the fight, if you're uh, interested in recruiting them. Yeah. Demi explains that a massive hole has opened up in Motavia and is killing all life forms nearby. And uh, Rune has no doubt this is the Black Energy Wave. And uh, more specifically, it's the profound darkness breaking through the other dimension. So yeah, this is it. You basically select your final team and head on to the dark dimension. Tiff, you should take Raja because again, you're going to need that white mage. (laughs) Oh yes, you are. Yes, you are. (laughs) And so, once they get to basically the edge of the of the other dimension, they see the profound darkness, and it's manifested as this like giant nightmarish maw of hatred and destruction. Yeah. And yeah, it's pretty gnarly. It's pretty. Yeah, it is. It is. It's just this kind of like black hole of. Yeah. Uh, it, it has some, uh, the crater from the end of final fantasy seven, right? It has, it gives me a little bit of that feeling. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good comparison. Yeah. You basically, uh, this is your final bout boss fight. It is, presumably, expectedly, pretty damn difficult. But if you have the right party, I don't know. 
I felt like uh, final uh, Dark Force fights in previous games were more difficult. And I think that speaks to the way that this game is just better, better balanced. Yeah, again, nothing in this game was ever as, as hard for me as dealing with Lashik. That was the, the high difficulty, like, watermark for me. If you can do that, you can pretty much do all of it. Oh yeah, Dark Force and Fantasy Star Two. It's been a long time since I play it. Played it, but it feels like it feels like an SMT final boss. Like you're just standing, right. you're just chipping away, and it's taking off, like doing mass, like one mass damage yeah. to your team and every move. It's no walk in the park. You you do have no. to fight every phase of Dark Force again in order to get to the Profound Darkness form at the end. But it's, it, especially if you have Raja, so you can smooth out the, the damage curve that you guys are suffering. It's not too bad. You can probably do it. <laughs> Who, whoever is picking this game up, I'm just saying, you can do it. You can do it. Can have do determination. It. And I would say, we're, we're wrapping up. We're getting close to wrapping up here, but you should pick up this game. Yeah. Don't be, don't be put off by the fact that it's a 16-bit game. It's just boot it up and listen to that title music and and you'll be like, oh yeah, I got to play this. (laughs) So the gap in the, basically the gap in space they're in is uh, beginning to collapse in on itself. The Elcidian dissolves into a light that protects them all and warps them safety. Mm -hmm. Now we are in pretty much the conclusion in the epilogue. The nine see the dawn of a new day. They, it's very beautiful. Very, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know. Serene. It's, it's very serene. It's very sad. It's actually, nature. For, it for, is for for a lot of for. There's a a very like bittersweet note to most of this end cutscene up until the very end where they decide to quirk it up a little well, bit. Yeah, it's um, yeah because they decide to part ways basically. Yeah, um, it's like all of your friends just leave you. And for a moment there, it's just like Chaz standing on a hill, basically alone, being like, oh, it, it's like really over, though, like the good and the bad. It's over. All of it is over. And that's kind of sad. I, yeah. I definitely felt, man, that kind of sucks. Are, are they really going to end Fantasy Star on this note? It's it does it definitely seems b- b- bittersweet. So to break it down, Ren and Demi are uh, going to return as administrators on Zelan. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're going to deliver uh, Raja and Kira back to Desilus. But Rika's uh, pretty hesitant, to. She doesn't really know what her future is. And Ren says the life that she chooses will, is going to be difficult. But he sees her as uh, the hope for the future. And she needs to go forward with pride and strength. Grizz and Han are going to go back to their respective villages. So I guess Han is going to deal with his shithead dad. He's also going to get married to his fiance, probably, who, oh, who that's true. You, you meet at one point. I don't think we talked about her when we go to the village, but you can actually, like, if you're one of those people that talks to every villager in, in the village, you can discover that there's this chick in Han's home village who he's, like, betrothed to, and their conversation is very cute. So he's probably going back to her. Yep. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and then Rune says that he's got to continue Lutz's mission to watch out over all of Algo, even though they've defeated the Profound Darkness. And he says goodbye. 
He's got to go get ready for Fantasy Star Online, you know. Exactly. Right? Oh, man. <laughs> is, is, Dark For- is, is Dark Force in PSO? Not as far as I remember, but I it's not like I ever got to Endgame in PSO. I My internet wasn't good enough for it. I mostly played <laughs> PSO solo, TBH, and I got a lot further than I would get today trying to solo vanilla PSO, but 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 no, I did not ever get to the end, so I have no idea if Dark Force is in it or not. I should look it up and find out. Dr. Internet, is Dark Force in Fantasy Star Online? Question mark. I'm willing to bet because Yuki Naja was in charge that he was that Dark Force is in there because what does Google tell us? Dark Force and Fantasy Star Online. Yes. Answer is yes. Dark Force is in Fantasy Star Online, also in Fantasy Star Universe, which was like Fantasy Star Online 2 before there was a Fantasy Star Online 2. That was a 360 game, and it sucked. Let's just let's pretend say, none of that ever happened. Dark Force is pretend. dead. <laughs> yeah, that's another. That's a whole other <laughs> meta story or uh, fan fiction. That's how I consider it. That's what I consider it to be fan fiction. Yeah, for um, sure, it basically uh, is. <laughs> so yeah, Rune is basically saying he's still got to watch over all of Algo, even though the Dark Force has been and the Profound Darkness has been defeated it forever, never came forever, back. and forever. It never came back. Yeah. And then you get the uh, little bit of an epilogue as the game ends. Ren uh, swings back the ship because Rika didn't want to take off and leave with everybody. She leaps overboard. She falls into Chaz's arms. And they finally express their feelings for each other. Yeah. It's nice that it doesn't end on Chaz and Rika being completely like, where do I go from here? But at the same time, so fucking weird, man. Yeah, so I don't care about Chaz and Rika's relationship at all. However, I was happy that the game didn't end on quite such a, a bitter note as it felt like it was going to for a long while there. I, w- I was very worried that the end of Fantasy Star was going to be parting as such sweet sorrow. And then they found a way to give me at least a little bit of happily ever after. And look, I'm an American. I grew up on Hollywood movies. You got to give me some happily ever after. I'm sorry. I need it. Yeah. And I, there was one of the interviews that I read and I'll put the interviews in the show notes with the developers said that they really, they considered ending on, they considered ending on a darker note, but felt like they deserved it to the fans who had played all four games to go out with a sense of closure for one thing, which is another well, reason why the whole PSO thing annoys me, but yeah, yeah. also it's a leave on a happy ending. Uh, I'm glad that they didn't Mass Effect three it then. Sounds like that was on in the in the cards. Glad they did not do that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think that's also I don't know if we mentioned it uh, earlier, but I think that outside of this franchise maybe uh seventh dragon like reiko kodama hasn't really wanted to go back and repeat herself that much no Um, no this isn't like Iga with castlevania or whatever i I wouldn't be surprised if people had tried to turn the keys back over to her a couple of times throughout the years to be like "Eh, fantasy star five yeah Um, money huh 
we could make a lot of money. And she was just like, nah, I'm good, guys. I said what I needed to say. That really does feel like the sort of energy there. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, do you have any final thoughts we haven't hit on here? Just a really great game. I feel like it is criminally underrated, given that it is not generally talked about in the same breath as stuff like Chrono Trigger and Final Fantasy VI. I know I hit that at the top, but I just want to reiterate that this is absolutely like the the pinnacle of 16-bit JRPG gaming. If you have never played this and you like this genre, you should play it. Like, oh, absolutely. Go find a way to play it right now. Like, you will not be disappointed. It is a wonderful game. And as much as I complained about Chaz being a doofus or, you know, my problems with the air castle or whatever. Like I've played through this whole thing more than once since discovering its excellence. And I would no doubt will again, it is a a marvel of 16 bit gaming and certain ways, almost a precursor to like, what you would see in the in the 32-bit era. Yeah, a, def, a definite herald to, to where yeah. this genre was going in the next generation of games. I would say at least in like how like complex the, the story is and mm-hmm. how sophisticated not all the characters are. For its era, yeah. characters are pretty damn sophisticated. And they are like very... Chaz aside, they are very memorable <laughs> characters. And yeah. I'd also say you don't need to play the other fantasy stars. To- no, you you really don't. Like, I I think playing through Fantasy Star One at least would would give you a greater appreciation for it. But that's absolutely extra credit. Yeah, um, it is. And if you're looking, I think we re- mentioned this in the in the Fantasy Star episode. But yeah, the S- Fantasy Star One. There's a Sega Ages version on Switch. It's mm-hmm. amazing. It's rebalanced. It like. There's so many quality of life improvements that it is really just a complete for an eight bit RPG. It is a complete pleasure to play through. But if you're only going to play one fantasy star, I'd say this is the one you should for. Yeah. And you can get that guy out of the, the Sega Genesis collection on literally everything. Mm-hmm. And that's going to cost you like 10 bucks probably. And on top of that, you'll get, Every Sonic game, every Shinobi game, every Streets of Rage, every Golden Axe, I think. Like, like you're going to get a lot of very good video games uh, in in A few bundled. crappy ones. <laughs> yeah, 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 a few crappy ones, too. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's not all bangers, but it's a lot of them. There's a lot of great stuff in there. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Awesome. So, well, should we yeah. uh, wrap it up here? Yeah, let's do it. Cool. Thanks so much for coming on and doing this. It's been a ton of fun. Oh yeah, it's been it's been an absolute pleasure. I yeah. I, I love talking about this stuff. Yeah, we got to find another game to do. Yeah, uh, for sure. Is there any is there anything you'd like to plug or put out there? Uh, I, I wish that there was more. Like I, I was telling you in the green room, I did unfortunately have to pull the plug on my own podcast. Uh, the only thing I can think to plug is if you are a fan of Dark Souls. I did do an interview with Jeremy Greer over on his podcast, Don't Give Up Skeleton. So you could 
find more of me there if you so desire. And that's a, that's an excellent show. It is an excellent show. Yeah. I was I was going to add that add, add that to boot. <laughs> also, just a really good show, especially if you like Dark Souls. Uh, yeah, I was on there a long time a long time ago as well. But yeah, I'll dig that out and uh, include a link. Is the podcast that you did? Is it no longer available? Online? Yeah, it's not. It's not on the internet anymore, unfortunately. Yeah, um, too bad. Yeah. If you, we'll have you back definitely. Great. Um, if not for, well. Eventually, we'll have you on for Persona 2 on Mechanic Yeah, yeah. Yes. But we'll find another game for us to do because this has been a lot of fun. And hopefully, you'll have another podcast going by then. Oh, yeah. I, yeah I'm, I'm sure I'll get back in the saddle. And if people are, are interested in my style, you will have something to look forward to eventually, I promise. <laughs> awesome. Cool. All I would say to wrap things up on my end or plug is just please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and all those places you can rate and review. There's so many places now. I I can't even keep track of them. Let's see. We are on Facebook. We're on Twitter. It's Combo Chain FM. And uh, yeah, listen to our sister podcast, Megaton Marathon. It's game by game journey through the Shimigami Tensei and Persona games. <laughs> and uh, one of these days we're going to get to uh, Persona 2 and have Alexander on there for that as well. So, yeah. for I, th- I think I was lined up for Innocent Sin specifically. That was uh, a very long time ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I may end up being on for both. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Uh, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Um, uh, <laughs> but yeah, we'll be in touch. No promises. No, no, you'll be on, but we'll figure it out. Okay. Awesome. I just don't even know where those documents are. Yeah. It it was an age ago. It was before, it was before the dark times before the empire. Yeah, precisely. Awesome. Thank you so much, Alexander. And uh, yeah, let's keep in touch and figure out another game to do. Yeah, for uh, sure. Thanks everybody for listening. And uh, we will be back soon. Happy journeys. Thank you.